Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Flight of Dragons. This is going to be an unusual show. It's a movie most of you will never even have heard of, much less seen. An obscure TV special from 1982 made by Rankin Bass. It is a childhood favourite of mine, and while I describe it, a lot of you may want to see it and work out whether it holds up without the rosy-coloured spectacles of nostalgia. If you live in England, you are shit out of luck, as it was never released on DVD here and barely on VHS digitally. You can't buy it or rent it anywhere, and to import and the American DVD will cost you north of 20 quid. Even the VHS tape is a rarity, so you know that's if you still have a VHS player. In the States, you can buy that DVD for less, as well as the best of all, uh, renting it for just $3 on Amazon, where you can also buy it for $10. I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but bear this in mind as you listen to us take you through. Now, our guests, Lauren Grieve of A Year of Steam. Hello there. Hello. And Jerome McIntosh of Gameburst. Good day, sir have not seen this all the way up until this weekend, so they've only just seen it for the first time. So they're going to hopefully balance out our long ingrained opinions of this with the contemporary reactions of newcomers, albeit newcomers with a deep appreciation of animation and storytelling. So we have many things to discuss, but we have to assume the whole way through that nobody has seen this and explain ourselves as we go through. So first off, I think, Jerome, when these, this releases... Our Thundercats episode still won't have aired, almost certainly. Okay. <laughs> so um, I think there's we, we talk about Rankin Bass during that Thundercats episode, but very briefly, uh, they were an animation studio, you know, most popular in their time in the eighties. Probably best known in America for Thundercats and the Rudolph special. I think the, the Rudolph is not massive over here. The uh, as in the, the the one with the little aperture dolls. That version of Rudolph. Yeah, the stop motion uh, yeah. that is yeah. played on like every television channel every Christmas. Yeah. I'll give you a time scale on this one. Uh, Rankin Bass began in uh, 1960 and then became defunct in 87. So basically, one of the last things they did would have been The Wind in the Willows. They did one version of The Wind in the Willows. Before that was This is Flight of Dragons in 1982, their second to last thing. They also did The Last Unicorn. They did. The Return of the King, the uh, version that's very similar to The Hobbit, which they did in 1977, which we talked about on our Lord of the Rings prologue episode with Chris Eason. And before that, The Wacky World of Mother Goose. Um, also the stop motion, Willie McBean and his magic machine, The Daydreamer, Mad Monster Party, and Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. Oh my God, that's like Christmas Eve goes to summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> animated tv specials rudolph the red-nosed reindeer the year without a santa claus is 1974 it's another one and uh was there also that um was it the year without the new year's what was that one that um uh, the, we hate the, movies talked about the one it was the sequel new- to <laughs> yeah it was a sequel to, to rudolph it's like rudolph's rudolph, shiny new, new year. year that's, that's the it. one with baby new year okay ch- check out the we hate movies animation damnation on rudolph's shiny new year it's quite astonishing okay so basically rankin bass tried their hardest but could not compete with uh the uh, other studios um when they pushed forward and a lot of animation studios bottomed out in the 80s filmation also uh went under as we'll talk about on our He-Man show coming up soon. But right in the middle of this, in 82, they did Flight of Dragons, and I think 
it's neck and neck with Thundercats for most special thing. I think, you know, if, if you asked me to say, I think it's more special because fewer people know about it. And so I have to keep it alive. Look all over the internet. You'll find a few reviews of this going, it does kind of hold up. I still quite like it today. Or this is bollocks by today's standards. That's about all you're going to find on Flight of Dragons. You'll find they tried to remake this in live action around about 2012, but it got shit canned. And that's about it. Because this is a matter of true obscurity. So rather than um, asking for your opinions before we begin, we're going to take it through. And like, you know, we can sort of get, you know, gauge your opinions as they were out while you watched it. And uh, we can sort of layer it with, uh, with how we feel about the movie as well. It begins as we launch straight in uh, with the plot summed up in one brief moment. Um, uh, we begin on an epic mountaintop with music that goes... Get used to that tune. It will be played repeatedly. <laughs> but it's such a good tune. I don't mind. It is, yeah. Uh, it, there, there is a sort of immediate epic wizard calling to a dragon from a mountain top, and this begins the first uh, of my moments of how can this not work in in the modern day? If you just did it, is one massive epic film. Uh, I may have blinded myself to the idea of this, but that's a thing I've got going through this. Um, that this could be remade. You take a hell of a lot of the naivety out of it. Uh, and what you've got here is the bare bones of a really awesome story. Um, so, I mean, like, what was the first thing that struck you about the animation? Were you like, uh, or was it like, oh, this is cute? Hmm. I wouldn't say it was, uh, but I, I think I could definitely tell it was from before I was born or before mm. I started, like, in earnest and drawing animation because, like, it's a style that when I was growing up I didn't really see, like, I can definitely tell it's from the time before I'm, I was used to it. Mm. At, at times it seems a bit judgy, but for the most part it flows up, flows quite well. And Lowen? Yeah, well, so for for me, Rankin-Bass is like a weird studio because you can I can always tell when I'm watching something by them, whether it's stop motion or animation, because it's just kind of like, oh, like, oh, God. Um, I'm not actually a big fan of their Hobbit, and I think their version of the Lord of the Ra- or the uh, Return of the King is is rough to watch. Oof. If you've already uh, got <laughs> bad bad feelings for those two, you're gonna have been going in like you you must have been fighting those the whole way through. It was it was strange. This wasn't quite as as egregious because it it so Rankin it wasn't Bass warping to me, a story you already knew and loved. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Rankin Bass to me always feels almost like the American equivalent of why anime is what it is, where it's like reusing scenes over and over again, using very few like changes to the scene because it it seems much more slapdash than the animations that I'm used to. But I think that's just more a fact that I'm kind of spoiled nowadays Mm. by the quality of the animation that we have in most of our movies. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I got, I got used to it after a while. It was only the first maybe like 15, 20 minutes that I was like, Oh, like a little cringing and then I was like all right I can I can get 
more on with this. Uh, everybody's face still bothered me. There was like a little bit of uncanny <laughs> valley, um, and everybody was a little bit wall-eyed. Um, <laughs> but I, but I did like the actual depiction of the dragons, especially Gorbash. Mm-hmm. So I like that worked for me a little better, and I was like, okay, like by the end, I was I was much more willing to go along with it. Uh, Gorbash is this first dragon we see. He is a big, green, brash, young dragon, and the wizard, you know, summons him to the hill. There was a time between the waning age of enchantment and the dawning age of logic when dragons flew the skies, free and unencumbered. Look down there, Gorbash, my friend. On that troubled earth below us, confusion and chaos reign. All mankind is facing an epic choice. A world of magic or a world of science. Which will it be? That's that's the plot in one like little sentence right there. And uh, it's essentially Tolkien. Like the whole way through this, you've got um, the idea that magic is slowly leaving the world to make way for the world of man. You know, the world of logic, the world of science. And you know, rather than departing to go into the West, the the plan is let's all go live in a bubble, and like you know, the rest of the world will carry on around us, unaware that we are right here, sort of you know, at the sidelines, inspiring them. Uh, which uh, leads me to another comparison, Harry Potter. It didn't strike me so hard until last night when I was watching it. This is basically Hogwarts Begins. <laughs> it's even got the four brothers going, right, we're going to have to get like a special, like we're going to have to get, like everything magic has to like be like moved to one side so that mankind can get on. We'll still be there with our magic society, but um, they just won't see us. That's Hogwarts. That, that's everything. I mean, this is this is a film I'm going to put money on the fact that Joe Rowling loved and still loves because she pretty much worked this premise into her wizard history. Well, it's also kind of a, a trope I've seen in other things as well. The idea of magic being like a separate realm, even like folklore talks a little bit about that in certain parts of the world mm. where it's like separated from like the regular world that we visited in, in dreams and, and inspiration, that kind of thing. So it's, it's something I've definitely seen before in other media and books and old fables and things of that nature. But it was, it was a pretty good rendition of it. Yeah. Normally it's uh, normally the waning waxing and waning of magic versus technology, but this way they just use the word science so much. Mm. Sharon, is it the Tuatha Dudano or the, uh, the idea of the fairy folk living just beyond our realm? Yeah, that's the Tuatha Dudano. Um, so that's Gaelic the, mythology then? It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think for me, the, uh, the specifics of, um, sort of the tone that this film takes is that the word they keep coming back to is logic. Um, and the fact that the word logic has the same suffix as the word magic made me feel like they could be very much two sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, whereas science almost seemed to be something different, um, it, more towards the end of the film, but the idea that science is more like the rituals and the, um, the specific practices 
um, of the spells logic. of logic. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So that that's kind of where I saw the the delineation as being. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they do draw very much from um, the the sort of classic pools of myth, as it were. Um, and there's there's multiple references throughout the film to um, various different mythologies. Mm. Um, and the like immediately after this sort of laying it down, you get the song by Don McLean, uh, the guy who sang American Pie and Vincent. Um, and I, this can't not be heartbreaking for me, considering what happens in the film and the you know, where the film is and how much the film has absolutely faded from time. You know, the, it's it is as if this film was the magic that now everybody has forgotten for me. Um, not that everyone ever, you know, really talked about it much when I was a kid either. You know, in England, it was pretty you know rare to find it. But I actually found this first when my father was playing squash. There was a uh, like a um, a child prison in the squash courts where you basically sort of you threw your <laughs> offspring while you were playing squash. And uh, there was a VHS in there, and you could buy them all the Dextro Energy tablets you could out of the vending <laughs> machine. And you just, they basically would sit there drinking their chocolate milk and eating Dextro Energy tablets and watching a supply of about 20 video cassettes. And that was a pretty good Saturday morning for me. I got to watch a bit, <laughs> bit of Centurions, a bit of uh, Brave Star. You know, stuff that I didn't have on video myself. And, you know, back in the day, I think this is not even been before we even had a VHS. Um, I couldn't get things on tap, so I had to basically wait for the cartoons to turn up on TV. So I, they had Flight of Dragons, and that became the thing that I would like. You know, I think I watched it like four weeks in a row. Oh, now I have this great image in my mind of a bunch of kids in like a little pen, like a petting zoo, mm-hmm. with like yeah. a big hamster bottle full yeah. of chocolate milk that they would just take turns going yeah. up to and like. Oh no, no no! It was only ever me on my own in this oh. room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, that's why that's, it felt like prison. It's that's possible true. that there was a two-way mirror in this room, and they were observing me, and my father was getting some extra cash on the side while he was playing uh, squash. But um, this didn't stop me from watching this little tiny twelve-inch telly, you know, with rapt attention while this. Uh, film went on and then i think i may have recorded it off the tv and then just watched it and watched it and watched it until i got the uh the old fuzzy lines um which you folks of the appropriate ages will remember from your copy of the name of the rose around about the 45 minutes and 12 seconds mark um, <laughs> uh, but yeah the um the song by don mclean i'll play for you now it's it's this mournful uh ballad sort of you know wistfully looking back on an age of dragons that are no longer exist anymore. But it, it's it's cut with the animation of dragons flying around so slowly and coming to rest and sort of sleeping in a dragon nest, which seems kind of like a dragon graveyard as well. And it's, to me, wholly effective for uh, melancholy. Flight of dragon Soar in the purple light in the sky or in my mind flight of dragon sail past reality leave illusion behind is it the past Believing in the magic 
catch the wind Rise out of sight Flight of dragons Pilots of fantasy In the sky Or in my mind Flight of dragons Flight of dragons um, What did you guys think of this song and this intro? It's interesting that you'd mentioned that the dragon nest seemed like a graveyard as well, because I got the very same impression. And as I was watching it, just being like, Oh, that's, that's interesting imagery. And it was, I found the song like oddly, I don't want to say moving, but it's something I'll probably talk about a lot later, but the, that there was like a, a weird resonance with it that even though part of me was cringing from the animation, I liked the overall composition of what was going on mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, so I was, I was like intrigued cause I, I didn't know much about this film going in. Yeah. Jerome. Yeah. I, I feel melancholy is like the best word. Cause that is like this song gets that, that feeling across from you. Like listening to it, it, it made me feel like, yeah, this, this isn't, it's not exactly going to be morbid, but it's not going to be that happy most of the way through. Yeah. It's not going to have a yay feeling. Mm. Entirely. It doesn't have like a bar tavern like fluidity to it. It's more like a somber, like the old, the little uh, guitar riffs coming through. Yeah, ding 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 ding. Uh, this is a film you really have to disengage cynicism with if you're going to get anything out of it. it basically, if you go in uh, with uh, a cynical bent, uh, this will just be appalling to watch. I'm, I'm trying to think of something that. This is another thing that uh, it feels like a, a parallel for the 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 idea of uh, of innocence um, and and being able to watch something wholly uncynical. Uh, it just doesn't really happen much uh, any, anymore. The uh, you know even the Lego Movie, but uh, I mean even My Little Pony Friendship is Magic has its you know inc- incredible madcap moments and sly moments and winking moments. There's no sly moments really or winking moments really in this. It's basically just a really earnest fairy tale with a modern uh, twist to it. I've been trying to work out why that is actually because the the idea that now you could argue that's happening because writers aren't just writing for kids anymore. Yeah. Um, and they're not just writing for kids and bored parents anymore. They're now writing for kids and adults who've been into this, you know, cartoons and comics and uh, superheroes and all this kind of thing their whole lives um, so it's almost like they can't take that uh, that generational gap anymore and use it to, to to do something that is entirely aimed at children unless it's really simplistic you look at stuff that is totally aimed at kids and nobody else and it's incredibly simplistic or ridiculously fast paced and madcap and nobody over the age of 12 could ever have a hope of keeping up but um, <laughs> But looking back at uh, a lot of the stuff that was out, um, kind of the, the fantasy type stuff, and, and a lot of this will be ranking best because this is kind of what they were doing. But it's it's not 
just aimed at children because it has kind of an adult tone to it. I mean, there's a couple of things that, that happen in this. There's They don't shy away from talking about death, um, although they do seem to have a magic etch-a-sketch. Um, they don't, there's, there's references to sex existing, albeit not in a kind of, there's no nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink kind of, of implication. It just is. It's part of It's the, there and you can piece it together if you work out from the, the placement of certain characters at well, certain indeed. point. Well, indeed. And, yeah. and um, Smurgle's reference to the, the mating, mating dance as well. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, but it, it And also be... Arak going after the uh, she-wolf who's protecting her cubs. He's like, yeah, I'm going to get yeah. me some of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep the kids out of the den. Um, but um, but yeah, th- there doesn't seem to be a, a generational gap feeling about this, um, and I think that for me was was part of the appeal when I saw it is that it doesn't have that talking down to kids thing, um, despite the fact that it is very exposition heavy, especially in the first yeah. twenty minutes. Oh God, yeah. Um, I mean, th- that is that I actually think this is written. Uh, mostly for kids or somebody who would be a child at heart. But if the overall feeling you're going to get from it is melancholy, then, you know, a film for kids or a story for kids is way too simplistic uh, a a term to to dismiss it with. It's for kids. It's to make kids feel melancholy. What? Nothing exists which does that. Exactly. You you wouldn't write something for children that was intended to create that uh, to, to evoke that emotion. The original um, book of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, um, you know, ad- adapted into Secret of Nim, which was a lot less melancholy, has an ending that just made me go, why did you tell me this story? <laughs> <laughs> but then those were the books I always loved as a kid anyway. So. Yeah, because th- those stick with you. Yeah. The Hobbit, when you when you were reading it for the first time as a kid, has this sad ending. Mm, yeah. yeah, Bridge to Terabithia, which Lyra has specifically asked to see again, by the way. Yeah. Good. Or Watership Down for... God, yeah. Oh, that's just terrifying. Well, I, I don't think yeah. Watership Down is actually aimed at children. <laughs> oh, well, but a lot of children do read it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. As a child, I did read that. and mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things where... When your parents first see it, they think it's going to be okay for you. Yeah. Then once you've read it, you soon find out maybe that wasn't really something I should have read. Yeah. <laughs> Iron Giant, more specifically, well, the, obviously the Iron Man was written by Ted Hughes to explain to his children what death was about. Mm. Um, well, or specifically that death didn't need to be the end of all things to explain the death of their own mother. Um, but that's the thing. They don't make books like this much anymore that sell. They don't make movies much like this anymore that sell because it's hard to sell melancholy. Although, you can sell Kick-Ass and Awesome easily. What about Harry Potter? Oh, yeah. Harry Potter has this in spades, but they get you in the door with Philosopher's Stone, which is bright and fun with dark undertones but the overriding feeling is isn't it awesome to be a wizard and isn't it great that harry now has a family and then slowly over time the melancholy begins to creep into harry's life but by that point by the end joe joe rowling was one of the was the most powerful author on the planet and that was going to sell no matter what i think they, there is still stuff around um that has that that meat to it and has dark substance about it. Yeah, absolutely. But ultimately, look at the commonality between all these things. What they are talking about is loss of innocence, effectively, you know, loss of childhood. It's very difficult to market that to parents who don't want their kids to lose their childhood yet. Yeah, yeah. Right, so let's talk about the film. 
Um, at the very beginning, you get some mean millers uh, who are not respecting nature, much like Avatar. Magic, he calls it. <laughs> My little boy could do better. And uh, this swan and a bunch of fairies nearly get killed by the mill wheel. And a wizard named Carolinus comes along. He's the green wizard, one of four brothers. And the millers tease him because they don't really care about or or respect magic anymore. He tries to make their mill wheel disappear just to show them and can't because magic is disappearing from the world. And thus he feels, you know, he is weakened and his display of uh, ineffectuality is laughed at all the harder by them. This being a macrocosm of what, you know, how little effect magic is now having on the world. It is fading away. And he goes back to uh, talk to his adopted daughter, Melisandre. I suppose we could talk about Carolinas here and Melisandre as characters. I, I will say right now, I, I love Carolinas still. His daughter now bugs the hell out of me. Didn't before, now she does. Now that I've had time to really start writing my own female characters, I'm like, why are you wasting the estrogen on this one? <laughs> I got really frustrated with her because she just served the purpose of keeping Carolinas informed of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Like she was like unconscious the whole time, just relating what was happening. I'm like, she's not crying like, pool. Yeah. Like it's you're not sort a of omens. Give me sight beyond sight. And also she I can see over great distances. Oh yeah. The random <laughs> throwaway line. But it's like, you're not a character. You're a telephone. Like mm. I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Like even at the, like when when uh, Peter gets kidnapped, she's like, "Oh my God, the dragon's kidnapping Peter!" And she's narrating the actual kidnap as it goes on. Just to, he's like, "Oh, <laughs> cheers for that one." She just felt like a complete exposition device just to move the plot along. Also, she was the princess to be won and scored for, and like, I will bring you back the crown of Omadon. And uh, oof, yeah, uh, if this was made these days, Melisande would have a, a completely different role, I think. She'd have something to do for a start. Yeah. Or at least we'd hope. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, ultimately it would have made more sense for her to go on the quest as well. Um, yeah. We do get a, a decent female later on, but it's so much later in the day that uh, I noticed this. After Danielle, who's basically a female Legolas um, of the Woodland Realm, she's an archer, turns up and saves their asses. That's it. For the rest of the movie, she's there, but she doesn't actually do anything that affects the narrative. She's just in the party. So she's like a character you pick up in Final Fantasy VII but never use. And you don't go on their side quest. Well, the best thing that she does is she gives Sir Orin somebody else to fawn over so he doesn't feel so bad about not winning the hand. Yeah, more on that in a <laughs> That's bit. That's crazy. <laughs> when we get right? to Sir Orin, folks. But yeah, no, oh. we, we totally, yeah, we, we get that. We know. Um, so yeah, Melisandre is a, a girl and she's like, oh, father, what, you know, oh, you feel sad and oh, father, you, and <laughs> that's pretty, like, I, I love this film, but I would change that about this film. Father, you need rest. No time. It just was not there. I called upon magic and there was none. Oh, oh. The pain again? I can't let it bother me. Have you written the messages as I asked? Yes, Father, but... Then summon the silver owls of the full moon. But... Summon them, I say. And she has, she's never bugged me until yesterday when I was actually analysing the thing. And I realised, oh, oh, this girl that I was always like, well, that's just the princess, isn't it? 
no, but because you know, back in the day, they didn't. There wasn't a call for the woman to be strong and uh, and to you know have more agency. There and was. It's just no one was listening. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the women's movement. Yeah. Um. Okay. Sorry. There wasn't a call. The call was not being heard at the time. Now it is. Although let's not keep calling because it bores. Um. What's the name? That one from Twilight. Oh, Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart, yeah. <laughs> she recently, uh, when, people, when they were asking her about, what do you think about this whole brouhaha with the Oscars and people of colour? She went, would you please all stop calling out for equal opportunities? It's boring. If you want equal opportunities, just write something. Write a script and make that really, really popular. That's great. Thank you so much, Kristen Stewart. Bring, yeah, bring, that's how it works. And because, ev- because everyone's obeying, you are not calling for uh, more roles for people of colour, more roles for, uh, for women, then your script won't get bought so that's how it works Kristen Stewart go back to your rich white girl shit anyway <laughs> now Carolinus is a, a green wizard he's very sort of into nature and um, there's uh, he's wise he's a little playful that's about it yeah. he, he he has a touch of Gandalf maybe he does have a touch of Gandalf kind of. Like, he's trying to orchestrate things and inspire quests. Yeah, and he's a little... Like, I could see him smoking some pipe weed kind of kind of guy. Okay, he could definitely hang out with Gandalf and hold his own in a chat, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think he, would, he, along with Gandalf, would both find Saruman stuffy and boring and, and difficult to communicate with. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Oh, difficult with, difficulty with your wizard brethren, eh, Gandalf? Yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, let me tell you about my brothers. Oh. <laughs> At least you no. can remember the name of your blue wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Not allowed to by copyright breach. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Oh, dear. Um, I think, though, the that's kind of par for the course for most fantasy, even modern fantasy. Um, the central figure of the druid... Yeah, is there in so much even even modern stuff, even Dumbledore, even you know ev- everything seems to have. As Lyra pointed out, yeah, um, everything seems to sort of revolve around that um, wise old man telling everybody what to do. Yeah, you're Merlin. Mm. There are two dragons who live with this uh, this waif and uh, her wizard dad, um, Gorbash and Smurgle. Gorbash, as I said, young green dragon. Actually doesn't take that much part in the proceedings, as you'll find out in a bit. And old Smurgle, who's sort of an old red cranky dragon, who's uh, kind of avuncular with uh, uh, Gorbash and has sort of taken him under his enormous wing. Um, the only way you can tell he's old is because he's got an old man's voice. Yeah, and he's also referred to about 800 times as old Smurgle. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he looks exactly the same age as yeah. all the other dragons. And he gets touchy when Peter mentions that he shows his age. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's one of actually one of my favourite characters in the film, for reasons we'll get to in a bit. <laughs> Carolinus decides, look, this like magic's weakening. We've got to do something about this. He holds a meeting for his four brothers. And how does he communicate with these guys? Palantir? Owl. 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 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's what the wizards do to talk to each other. They tie a little message to the uh, leg of an owl and they send it off. And there's uh, there's three brothers. I know magic's um, like waning, but you think they would have found a better way to keep in contact with each other? Yeah, I mean, one of the owls, owls had to fly to China. <laughs> if this, if this first like it takes place in like a medieval style England, that's a long way for an owl to fly. <laughs> The other Especially one had to fly to the sea. <laughs> Especially Good luck since with that. They literally use magic balls to talk to each other. The rest, like crystal balls, yeah. at other points in the in the movie. It's just like, why wouldn't you use that to begin with? Yeah, and that crystal ball, by the way, is totally useless once you got Melisandre there to tell you everything. Of course. Uh, and can we, for a brief moment, talk about the introduction of these other three wizards, especially? Because uh, it, it loads in, it's just like, and the yellow wizard, Lotezal, the, the wielder of, and I'm just like, racism! Lotezal is your Commodore Garden wise old Chinaman, Confucius yeah. say, and he's all dressed in yellow and and is has very clearly Asian features and lives in clouds and has a beautiful Chinese dragon called Chinsu. Oh, the Chinese firebolt. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so so did this bother you guys? <laughs> did it was just that little weird thing when 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 he called when he told Melisandre to go call the owls, I thought was were completely like it was gonna be something a bit different. He was gonna contact his brothers a different way, but it it just seemed weird that they wouldn't use the magic crystal balls to keep going. Maybe they were supersonic owls. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the, the second brother is Lo Tejal, who lives in China. He's like, ah, wisdom. And Confucius say he, he is actually not quite. I mean, I've seen worse. Yeah. It, A see, lot. The voice wasn't too bad. Yeah. And they, they didn't. They didn't take it too far. Yeah, at the very it's, least. It, there, there isn't much negativity in how he's portrayed. He is—he's a. I mean, all of them seem a little bit impotent and, and unable yeah. to affect change. But why does he have to be the yellow wizard? <laughs> I mean, he, he could have been. Somebody didn't think that one through. Really, he could have been the blue wizard. Nobody would have said boo to it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was just—it well, was a little too on the nose, I think. Yeah, even golden. Golden would have sounded The Golden Wizard. Mm, yeah. yeah, something yeah. Like that. Just a little note here. It is actually the Golden Wizard. I don't know where any of us got yellow from. Well, especially since his... his Why do his I have little, to be Mr. His, yellow? His dragon... <laughs> Mr. Black. Sorry, carry <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, And then Solarius, the, the blue wizard, is like... He bothered me too, but not because <laughs> of like racist overtones, but just because he was just so like grandiose and like I will call upon Neptune and collect serpents of the friends. Like I, I almost imagine him himself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I, like, I imagine like the four of them come around for like a like dinner, like a family gathering, and and uh, Caroline is just being like, "Oh Jesus Christ, this is why I smoke pipe weed." And, <laughs> and the other three because it's I like have you know, you a whale steak. Yeah. Yes. And I That's I caught it myself. <laughs> and and you know it's just so weird. And then you get to the Forgot last one, Amadon. Sorry. And Amadon's just the downer brother who's just kind of like death and destruction. Yes, it's like, all right, go back to listen to your Marilyn Manson. Like, we're going to go over here and have a nice dinner. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, what a family. Father, who are these brothers? You've never spoken to me of them. I know you are green wizard of nature's realm. 
But the others? My brother Solarius is the blue wizard, lord of the depths and the heights. His realm is outer space, deepest ocean, highest mountain. My brother calls counsel, but why? Lunarian! Lunarian! And my brother Lotajal, the golden wizard. His realm is light and air. He is lord of transcendence, healing, contemplation. I was expecting this. It was inevitable. Shensu! Shensu! Finally, high and loathly tower, my last brother, Omadan, the Red Wizard, Lord of the Devil's Domain, seducer of darkness, master of that heartless magic the world calls black. <laughs> Briag! Briag! My fool brother has just realized the inevitable. Well, I'll go. It should prove amusing. Briag, I say! the terrible Briag, he is absolute ruler of that inferno-like mass of primordial filth, which is his domain. But why does antiquity force you to include something so abominable? As evil is a part of all things, evil is a part of our world of magic. For the irony of all existence is that good would be totally impotent without the contrast of evil. Solarius is this, you know, big, statuesque, black wizard wearing blue robes. And he lives in the middle of the sea and clearly doesn't get out much because all <laughs> the only people he talks to are dolphins. Um, because, yeah, like, uh, he, he does repeatedly say throughout the, the uh, early stage of the, of the adventure, I shall bring you serpents from the sea. And Carolinas has to say to him, yeah, but the quest is going to be on land. Once again, you're useless, Solarius. But um, <laughs> I shall call down a mighty comet. That would defeat the purpose because you just destroy everything yeah. anyway. <laughs> you just destroy the whole Earth. Yeah, also, course, yeah. his realm is not only the sea, but outer space. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how percent of everything. <laughs> is that not too much power for one wizard? You would think. Well, and that also kind of highlights another point that magic is supposed to be like leaking out of this world and Carolinus can't even make like a water wheel disappear and Lotizal, get rid of heartburn. Yeah, yeah, he can't even get rid of heartburn. And Lotizal's like Lotizal, like, what does he even do? Like he calls once on the the telephone basically. But then at one point, like I, I you know, I don't want to skip ahead, but Solarius has the power of life and death. Mm. Is like, I will bring you back to life. It's just like, oh yeah, okay. he does as well. That seems a little extreme. There's I didn't realize that was also a part of the powers of the sea and outer space. There is one <laughs> character who he definitely should have brought back to life. But of course, the fact that he doesn't makes that this ending so bittersweet. Oh my God, right? Yeah. I, I, I think I if feel he had like, it, cheapened it, I think. It, yeah. it feels like the other three actually took domains and says... I'll I'll just take everything else, else if that's okay. I'll take two thirds of the Earth's surface and everything outside it. <laughs> you do kind yep. of 
you do kind of get that in Greek myth because um, after the fight mm. between the Titans um, and uh, Zeus and his brothers, it's like Zeus takes the earth, Poseidon takes the sea, and Hades gets stuck with what's left. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, speaking of which, uh, Omadon, you know, the, the, the standard tropes uh, are followed up on. So you've got White Wizard, Black Wizard, Asian Wizard, Monster. Basically, <laughs> Omadon is a living monster, a giant, horny, old troll type thing. Um, you know, who's not even wearing a hat. He's like pulled his hat over his eyes like a giant pointed balaclava. It's insane. I, I will say there is something about the designs of the male noses in this <coughs> film that gets Four to be dick a bit. noses? <laughs> it's like, what you were thinking, right? What? What? It just... The random horn on his nose, like, it got to be a bit, like... You don't like my random horn. <laughs> it is a little bit frustrating that they've kind of gone out of their way to go, like, really old mythical in mm. their content. And there's, you know, there's a lot of pagan overtones in this. Like I said, you get various uh, pantheonic mythologies that are referenced. Um, there's something in there. I think one of the the magical tools is the, it, there's the shield of Saturn, which references uh, Roman gods, the flute mm. of Olympus, which references Greek. Mm. And the, the thing that ignites the flame in the dragon's mouth is called Thor's thimble. So that's Norse. Um, so that's Norse. And then they go full on Abrahamic, Devil. Yeah. <laughs> he is basically Satan. High and loathly tower, which is basically Castle Red Skull. Mm. Um, although this was actually released the same year, like a year before He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, so they couldn't possibly have taken from Skeletor. But uh, the uh, basically, Amazon is this horrible, horrible monster who the moment he gets uh, Carolinus's message of like... Uh, Omadon, stop. We're all getting really weak. Stop. Need to have a meeting. Stop. Um, bring lunch. Stop. Whale steak? Question mark. <laughs> um, the, he goes, <laughs> my pathetic brothers. And like you automatically get that this guy is pure evil, clearly immediately up to no good, and would have been trying to take over the world yesterday if he could. It's, it's very much like... um. Like you're not even gonna wait to show show your colours. Like you, yeah, like it at first. Like the way he introduces him is if oh you know there needs to be a balance. You know there has to be dark magic. Like yeah. somebody has to take over that domain. Cut yeah. to the most evil person in the entire <laughs> world. Why yeah. would we ever give him powers? Even uh, uh, Tim Curry as the darkness would go. Oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> He's like, really devilish. I do Steady like off. his voice. I do like he has that. Old well, school gravitas. Well, yeah, that's because it's James Earl Dan Jones. <laughs> just after uh, Empire, just before uh, Jedi, long before Lion King, and around about the same time as Conan. So uh, he was he was on a roll at this stage, and he gives this character, who might otherwise be this awful stereotype, a gravitas, so that he's really, really watchable. For me, at least. I don't know about you guys. No, I agree. Totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they they have their meeting and they have to bring in Slytherin because otherwise it's not <laughs> balanced. And this actually did kind of um, I, I, it, it reminded me of what we've been discussing. We got like I think we we questioned it repeatedly back when we did the Harry Potter shows. Like you know, do you really have to have Slytherin? You know, for balance, just you know what? Like you do realize 
that two genocidal wizard world wars occurred just in the 20th century because of Slytherin, because of a concentration of super racists. Could you consider, just consider, maybe integrating them into the other houses just for a century? See if you can do it without genocide. And then if it works, then keep it that way. I, I don't think they understand the difference between devil's advocate and yeah. just the devil. devil. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he, he basically, um, what they, the, the basic gist is, what Carolina says is what Omadon refers to as a retirement village, which is a giant bubble that mankind can't see where all the magic stuff will get to live in a sort of a world of uh, a permanently ever-living utopia. <laughs> that will exist just off the fringe of man's domain uh, and be there. Specifically, it's not that they will disappear. It's that they will be there very quietly and subtly in the background, inspiring man. And uh, because as, as Carolinas puts, and is actually quite compelling, uh, magic for that read imagination is what fires science. It, you know, it gives you the requirement of inventing. If you don't, you know, look at a, a, a bird and, uh, or, uh, as he says, a fairy's wings and wish you could fly, you're not going to invent the aeroplane. So um, basically the various parts of the uh, magical world are there to inspire man to basically use his science to mirror that. Mm. And that, that was something as well that I really liked and, and, only occurred to me on this watch through actually that science as it's certainly as it's presented in this uh, this film is not a creative force it's not it's, it discovers it analyzes it puts pieces together and it works out how things that already exist function but it doesn't necessarily create anything new it takes the inspiration of magic to do that and i think from the very beginning where he has that interchange with the Millers, very specifically, it's not that they don't believe in magic anymore, it's that they don't respect it because what they're seeing mm. around them is the magic that they're, that they're used to, that they grew up with, that is of their childhood, is waning. And they see it, but they see it, as you said, impotent and, and not really being able to achieve anything. And I actually think this is where Carolinus's idea makes perfect sense. If you consolidate what magic is left then you end up with something that still has its potency to inspire, um, that can still give people those dreams and those flights of fancy that will take them to places that they would not otherwise go. Meanwhile, science and logic get to enact that inspiration and take mankind on to bigger and better things. Otherwise, you end up with... Um, a, a logic and science that can't properly take hold because magic keeps interfering with it, which is what you'd get with if, if Omadon was allowed to have his way, um, or takes hold in a way that's very negative and very destructive. And uh, uh, what good magic remains is unable to achieve its purpose. You've just described the generational uh, quandary of how one generation can keep the previous generation aware of its mistakes. And if they're not, then they will repeat them. Indeed. It shall be. I will bring you distant stars, wonders from the sea. And I will bring you peace and harmony, so that every magic thing might live together and share what enchantment remains. No, never. I will not concede defeat by this modern world. I will not retire to this fool's paradise. But we have no choice. Inevitability is the strongest magic of all. I have weapons you would not dare use. Fear 
rules men by summoning all the dark powers. I will infest the spirit of man so that he uses his science and logic to destroy himself. What havoc I will raise. Turn brother against brother. Greed and avarice shall prevail. And those who do not hear my words shall pay the price. I'll teach man to use his machines. I'll show him what distorted science can give birth to. I'll teach him to fly like a fairy. And I'll give the ultimate answer to all his science can ask. And the world will be free for my magic again. <laughs> so something else occurred to me while I was watching this, especially. So uh, Carolinus, uh, Lotazau, and uh, Solarius are all losing their power, but Omidon becomes stronger as mm. mankind like starts becoming more like the forefront of the world, so to speak, which I almost feel is like a subtle comment on like the death and destruction that mankind kind of naturally rots on himself. Yeah. In like a way. Well, Omadon wants to inspire mankind to create new and better weapons of war, to be more greedy, to um, to take from each other, and to to uh, to never be satisfied with what it has. So, and then he but he's content to basically let man destroy itself with science. Mm. They even, you know, very overtly show the atom bomb. There is actually a, a solid argument that Omadon, in fact, won. I mean, we haven't yet destroyed ourselves, but we've certainly made the Earth considerably less inhabitable in, since 1982 and set in motion extreme difficulty for future generations. So, so an interesting thought, though, if Amadon had been allowed to enact his plan and allow mankind or force mankind to destroy itself, if there was some way to still protect like the magical world, it would almost be better for the magical world yeah. in the like, mm. realm of this movie. They mop up afterwards. Yeah, but they're also compassionate to humans. They consider that it's um, you know that they they don't they want, don't want, don't want to get in the way of the next generation. They want to see them thrive, but in yeah. they also want to steer them in what they consider to be the right direction. Yeah. And Amadon's basically just written off humanity as a whole. Yeah, he huh. sees them as tools, like a, a way to strengthen himself, and then eventually throw them away once he's done with them, instead of like a potential. And this is when, uh, um, as soon as Obadon goes, you bunch of pussies, I'm going to destroy all of mankind by allowing it to destroy itself. Just try and stop me. <laughs> and then disappears. By the way, he, he rides in an enormous evil dragon called Briach, who comes up repeatedly uh, later on. Immediately, uh, Solarius decides, I shall fight him with great sea serpents. And then the entire room around them goes, no way, and starts to cave in. And big chunks of gold fall from the ceiling. And uh, as they get outside, apparently the forces of, of, of balance, which I believe Carolinas refers to repeatedly as antiquity, won't mm-hmm. allow the brothers to go to war. Because, um, although he doesn't say this, it would potentially tear apart the fabric of space and time. 
So, uh, but they can, however, inspire quests. So basically, the, the plan is let's get a quest going, and we'll send them after Omadon. Stop him that way. In part, and given what we've just said about the um, the idea of Omadon looking at mankind and not having any faith that he that they will achieve anything, um, and that he's content to just let them destroy themselves, do you think that that's an observation on? not having faith in the next generation. Yes. I may not be conscious, but yes. But what can we do? We must inspire a quest with its sacred mission to steal the red crown of Omadon. We will enlist the aid of allies who share our beliefs. Mortals, enchanted folk, beasts, dragons. All such creatures in my dominion are peaceful, hardly suitable. I can inspire Neptune himself to join, and great whales and serpents of the sea. Unfortunately, the quest will be waged on land. No good brothers. It seems I, and I alone, can inspire such a mission. Carolina says there must be three to start a quest, which made me immediately start thinking of as many quests as I could that started with three, and I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Frodo, Sam, and Gandalf when they're leaving uh, the Shire. That is I, I think possibly given that as I said there is quite a bit of, of pagan imagery used in the, the world of magic I think that might be a reference to the idea that everything comes from three that basically you have you have one um, force I suppose one um, uh, source of energy and from the one comes two uh, which is the god and the goddess and from the two come three and then the multitudes that follow thereafter so Mm. three is kind of the point at which things become able to enact in the world new century starts with three i mean (laughs) after the uh the the, the stuff at clendenin basically it's annie abby and uh, james setting Mm. out starting the whole thing also harry potter ron hermione and harry Mm -hmm. yeah and also three seven and nine are just magical numbers in general for like numerology and such like that they're big ones that's why there's nine in the fellowship that's why there's actually in the end here aren't there seven companions like the three become seven by the end Uh, i'm pretty sure because it's the original three plus smurgle danielle uh giles giles and arag arag so that's seven. So the three becomes seven. So three, seven, nine are the like important numbers in numerology and like other branches of science. Although technically, in the words of the Spice Art Girls, two become one. <laughs> well, I'm, um, I'm sorry to break that illusion for you, Alex, but I think they were referring to something else. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes about this? that makes Peter and Gorbash's relationship very awkward. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You're desecrating my innocence, Jerome. Okay. Um, so, yeah, to, to start this, I mean, this, this film takes a while to sort of start off on, on a quest. It feels like um, it doesn't really have the runtime to, to give you that sort of Tolkien style, like, you know, just going and going and going, one year worth of, uh, of journeying. So it takes a while to sort of get itself in gear. That never bothered me as a child because I like the story being sort of set in motion first. And, like, when you're a kid, you want quests to be fairly quick. Because, you know, that way everyone can everyone can do their thing and then you can get to the end and, and we can all go home and have tea. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, their the leader for this quest or their the, the, the ace in the hole is um, huh. Carolinus goes and talks to a tree. Mm, always a bad idea. And the tree is the uh, manifestation of antiquity who says, You must go to the future to find the descendant of Great Peter. 
the 777th son of Great Peter. Um, so it's... <laughs> it's why, why, why that far? I'm, I'm sure he's got another... What? Well, he no. could have he could have gone for the seventy seventh, but seven 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 is super magic. Well, it's three sevens. Yeah, so exactly. Three seven. uh, I'm am sorry. Yeah. Oh. Did anybody else, by the way, think that tree looked an awful lot like a burning bush? Yeah. 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 I'm talking about Hebrew imagery. Um, but yeah, so uh, Peter. Okay, so Great Peter was the guy who first taught the dragons to talk. He doesn't come into the story at all. He's just referenced. And so he's kind of like dragon mythology is like the, the, uh, an important human. Uh, Peter Dickinson is a guy living in Boston in around about 1982. And he's uh, a nerd and proud of it. And um, he's created his own board game. And uh, it's called Flight of Dragons. And it basically... Uh, comprises the characters we've already mentioned and, you know, the four wizards and Melisandre for some reason and Gorbash going around the board and it's like, I've got you frozen in the ice caverns. So it's kind of like a simplified D&D board game. Um, now, for some explanation here, this movie came from a book and the book was called The Flight of Dragons by Peter Dickinson. So this is the equivalent of the uh, of, of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone um, halfway through, because it's about halfway through the time it starts rolling, um, they meet Joanne Rowling, and she comes and helps them to get rid of Voldemort. It's that level of crazy, if you think about it. Well, the, the main story comes from actually a, another book entirely, because the, the Flight of Dragons, the actual book, which is amazing to me, because I have actually r- flipped through that book in mm. the past like completely unrelated to this and was amazed to find that I had after I started looking it up is all speculative historical fiction, not, mm, not fiction. It's speculative history on how like cryptozoologic, cryptozoologically speaking, dragons could have existed at one point by science, like by our understanding of science at that point, specifically how they could fly was what he focused on. I've actually got an author comment from Dickinson himself here, sort of explaining his part in how this film came together, which will kind of explain this book, the other book they used, and uh, a couple of things which I didn't know about. Hmm. Uh, I was on a train looking at a dragon on the cover of an... uh, This is American, so of an omnibus edition of Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy, as it then was. So this would have been in the uh, mid-'70s. now, this one had a bulky body, the dragon, and rather stubby wings, which obviously would never get it airborne, uh, let alone with the two people it was carrying on its back, and all of its own weight of muscle and bone. Obviously, any lift had to come from the body itself. Its very shape suggested some kind of gas bag. I thought about it for the rest of the journey, and then on and off for a couple of days after that, and in the end of that time, I'd managed to slot everything I knew about dragons, why they layered in caves around which nothing would grow, and where hordes of gold could be found, why they had a preferred diet of princesses, how and why they breathed fire, why they had only one vulnerable spot and that their blood melted the blade of the sword that killed them and so on into a coherent theory that explained why these things were necessary accomplishments to the evolution of lighter than air flight so it's kind of like a slightly more light hearted zombie survival guide. The result was as pleasing as a completed jigsaw so I wrote it out thinking I might end up with a sort of small comic pamphlet people give each other at Christmas as a stocking filler my agent however sent it to an ambitious young publisher, publisher packager who had other ideas. He commissioned some juicy great dragon illustrations from Wayne Anderson and travelled the world, selling the concept for amazing sums to a number of big-time publishers. Alas, he overreached himself in a number of ways. He'd promised the buyers a book 
of a great deal longer than Wayne and I provided, so I had to invent a dozen extra pages with only a week to do it in, and the designer had to stretch Wayne's pictures by ingenious reuse of details. And alas, our publisher also began to overstretch himself financially and eventually went bankrupt. But in the meanwhile, he'd also sold the concept to a company making animated cartoons for TV. They bought it sight unseen, without apparently realizing there was no kind of story or plot in what I'd written. Undeterred, they went ahead and bought the entire plot of The Dragon and the George from its author, Gordon Dixon. The film seems to get shown pretty well every Christmas. Scraps of my theory crop up here and there, and the hero is named Sir Peter Dickinson. And this is the bit that surprised me. Nobody asked me, of course. But that's... (laughs) But that's all I have to do with it. I don't even make any money out of those repeats, but I bear no grudge. I'd still earn more from my silly little pamphlet before the crash than I've done uh, till then from any of my other books. Okay, life is unfair, but not always to one's own disadvantage. So, yeah, basically, this character is called Peter Dickinson. I I believe he probably doesn't have much to do with the actual Peter Dickinson. But, um, yeah, it's it's like they've got the guy who wrote the book on these things. Mm. And they actually, in the film, say, oh, you wrote this book, The Flight of Dragons. See? And it is that book. It has that front cover. And, in fact, that front cover is also on the game he makes. Yeah. Yep. 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 But the game is not a real thing. I did look no. that up. Uh, and also, oh my god, it was par- it was poorly designed. I could make a better game, but <laughs> I have um, made a better game. It was called Mummy, Where Are You? <laughs> oh, I, I have made better games myself, <laughs> but still, it was it was very nice. I actually felt a lot for this character because I was like, oh wait, he's a nerdy science based game designer who likes dragons, who wears glasses. Is this me from the eighties? <laughs> what is going on right now, Mister Dickinson? Is this all you think about? Never mind what I think. What do you think of this new Flight of Dragons game I invented? It's fun. What can I say? Just a couple of thousand dollars, we can manufacture this, and we'll all be living like kings. Just a couple of thousand, he says, like it was peanuts. This is an heirloom. It must be worth something. Your ears didn't loom so big. If I give you 50, I'd be fired. Flight of Dragons. Aren't you writing a book by the same name? Was. I don't have time to work on it now, not with holding down two jobs, but if this game sells... You know something, Mr. Dickinson? Nothing personal, but you're a real dragon nut. (laughs) They fascinate me. Always have. I'm sure they really existed at one time. See, I'm trying to dope out how they breathed fire, how they flew, how they... I take back the nut part. You're a dragon fanatic. (laughs) Right. I eat, breathe, and sleep them. I hope to become a member of England's Dragon Society, and I live here in Boston. Your turn, evil wizard. Why am I always the bad guy? Nine! I got you blocked in the enchanted ice passage, frozen stiff! Yeah, but an 11 will give me dragon fire to melt it. That's going to be our leader? That's the 777th son of... Antiquity must know. Trust antiquity. Uh, so I, 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 this is when I really started engaging with the story, uh, because up to this point I was like, that's a little bit racist. Oh, that's a little bit, (laughs) oh, that's a little bit strange. Oh man, this animation is painful. I kind of like the dragons though. And then we get to that point and I'm like, huh, that's oddly specific. (laughs) And then that was where I really started paying attention. Uh, Jerome, what did you think of Peter Dickinson of Beacon Street? 
He's all right. I did sort of like the twist that they were going so far into the future to get this one guy mm. who, essentially, the way I think of it is the, unre- the reason why he's made all the characters look exactly as they are mm. is because he goes back in time to meet them all, mm. thus creating this weird mental Paradox. time loop in my yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> or he was just, because uh, at that point in the future, they would have already won and the realm of magic would have been uh, mm. hidden away, but still touching the uh, man. But he was particularly kind of connected to, to it yeah. because yeah. of the events of the film. So he just was like inspired by it, but didn't know why at the time. And then everything happens yeah. because time travel is weird. So he's just Star Lord, although he's much more of a mawkish Peter Parker type than uh, like sixties Peter Parker, not, not uh, wisecracking Peter Parker. Um, and so, yeah, Carolinas turns up 1000 years after apparently the events of flight of dragons would have taken place. And, uh, it appears within, okay. yeah, and within, <laughs> he, he, uh, he appears within the game board that uh, Peter's trying to sell to a pawnbroker. And they, hang on. What's I think, what is Peter? No, he's, try, he's trying to get him to invest in him making all oh, right. whole series. Yeah, he's like, like he, he's, he asked for a couple of thousand. Yeah, just <laughs> a couple of thousand. Um, and uh, and yeah, basically, Carolinas freezes this pawnbroker and says, "Come down, Peter Dickinson." Blah 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 blah, and then throws him back in time a thousand years on these flaming dice. And, uh, and Peter gets to meet a dragon in midair in this fairly epic moment of sort of like falling out of the sky into a medieval realm. And he meets Smurgle. And then Carolinus, in his infinite wisdom, decides to change him out of his kind of fairly fetching, you know, 19, 1980s flannels into this stupidest oh medieval outfit I've ever seen. He's got like, like bare legs in a man skirt, long <laughs> sleeves and a cape and a Persian hat. It's so weird. <laughs> And I'm so glad what happened hat. to him immediately afterwards because it looks awful. Apart from the hat, that's Aragorn in the Rankin Bass. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Lord of the Rings. Rankin Bass. Ralph. Sorry, it's not. Is it's it? It's Ralph Bakshi. Yes, you're uh, right. Yeah, the, the the one in the man skirt uh, and the, with the potato head. Um, <laughs> was that, was Aragorn even in? that version of it? Of course he wasn't. He wasn't in the Hobbit. He was barely in the Return of the King. I think he had a great big beard. Um, how could you not have him in the Return of the King? He is the literal king that is returning. <laughs> I know, but it was Rankin Bass's decision, and they decided to focus on the Hobbits and where there's a whip, which there's a way. <laughs> it was Ralph Bakshi's decision. Um, uh, I, I might have missed something, but how is he seeing okay without his glasses? Right? Oh my Good god! Question. Because magic, but then again, science, which they keep going back to. So surely, science must hold sway here. Maybe they're just reading glasses, and he was only using them to read the small cards that he doesn't have in his game. He seemed pretty attached to them all the time (laughs) until, like, he just magicked them away. He was probably like, wait, I needed those to see. Maybe he magicked him some contacts as part of his outlandish outfit. I I mean, magic uh, can create science. He he had difficulty, like, he didn't even know about milk, so he doesn't understand. Contact lenses. He, he would just burn Peter's eyes clean out of his skull if he tried. <laughs> he couldn't even make a mill wheel disappear. I don't trust this magic. And again, his magic fails when he tries to rescue Peter. So, yeah. Mm. Thank God he didn't try, frankly. 
Um, okay, so Carolinas comes in and goes, come look at my library of unwritten books, because he's a show-off. And he literally shows him Beowulf, The Idols of the King, Gulliver's Travels, The Tempest, Alice in Wonderland, and The Wizard of Oz in no discernible order on his bookshelf. <laughs> it's, it's literally like a goat. <clears throat> yep, that was me. Yep. yep. Yeah, I did that. I mean, That's they're, they're not in alphabetical order. They're not in really chronological order because there's so many before and after and in between. And so I can guess only that if you've seen High Fidelity, he got these in autobiographical order, how he came the across. The order in them. which he read oh. them. Yeah. <laughs> um, which means his view of history has to be completely skewed. But, um, yeah, it, uh, interesting, like... He, he he's read 20th century literature that means or at least 19th century literature and yet he doesn't seem to really know much about peter but uh, either way he happens to have the flight of dragons on his bookshelf which is good because no one else on earth does <laughs> <laughs> except maybe me um yeah so I he shows it to peter but won't let him look at it of course because uh, it's a magic library which is is cool by the way um and although he does have this library and he does have two dragons he doesn't have any home defenses so omadon has sent his dragon um uh Briar, to, to kidnap peter and uh, Briar's just looking through the window going hey 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 <laughs> Uh, whilst whilst they have a toast and uh, Peter helps uh, with science to um, uh, to, to heal Carolinus's heartburn uh, by getting him to change the cider into milk um, rather than magicking up some tums. I don't know. He could possibly have done that. <laughs> Which is a real thing. I yeah. mean, milk will help yeah, stomach ulcers. Although if you end up drinking too much of it, then all the, uh, la- the lactic acid turns to sugar and then burns the shit out of your intestines anyway. So Yeah, yeah, it's not a long-term solution, but it can work for a brief moment. In the absence of Pepto-Bismol or another functional Instant antacid. Relief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, Peter immediately mawkishly goes, oh, Melisande, you're that girl that I dreamed of in my game. and Or something along those lines. She's like, oh, Peter, you are so charming. <laughs> yeah. I've never met somebody from the 20th century before. <laughs> in fact, I don't think I've met anybody else except for my father and yeah. his dragons. Yeah. <laughs> makes it even creepier. Like, he's her adopted father and has been around, she's been around him for her entire life. And from the sounds of it, Really doesn't get out much. No. Well, she doesn't appear to have anything to do other than sit there and wait for visiting men to fall in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> um, <sighs> yeah. So uh, Peter like gets snatched up by Briarg, and um, there's a point where she goes, "Oh my God, he's dropping Peter!" And at this point, he is <laughs> a mile into the sky. And he doesn't drop Peter for eight seconds or look like he's going to drop Peter for eight seconds. So she is some kind of psychic. <laughs> yeah. no, it's more like, oh, wait, that's a good idea. I'll just drop him. What am I carrying him for? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so basically Gorbash is flying after Briar to try and stop him and bring back Peter. Uh, Carolinus tries to use transwarp beaming to get Peter back. Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't realize that space is the thing that's moving. So uh, he ends up. Um, throwing a bolt of completely random magic, it seems, at uh, the, the Gorbash and Peter as they meet in midair, which, boom, fuses them. So when Gorbash wakes up, his mind is Peter. Boom! Did you expect that, you two? No. Uh, no, I, I didn't <laughs> expect that, but I was uh, I was a little annoyed because, uh, just like most films... <laughs> well, no, oh, I mean, I really like Gorbash, but then, like most films of this nature, whenever... 
the protagonist or a character becomes combined with something as super awesome as a dragon, their first thought is like, oh no, this is terrible. I'd be like, (laughs) yeah, fire breathing dragon. Let's do this, bitches. Yeah. this quest became a whole lot easier. <laughs> before I was an idiot. I'm no longer a tiny human being. I can fly. No, before I was a nerd dressed as an idiot. Now I'm a dragon. Okay. <laughs> I don't so, even need my glasses anymore. I'm yeah. using somebody else's eyes. Let's do this. Like, you think the guy who wrote a book called The Flight of Dragons would be a bit more excited yeah. yes. about turning into a dragon. It takes he him a would. while. It takes yeah. him basically once he's flying, then he's happy. But it takes him a while. Um, but but yeah, there is a reason why, why antiquity specifically shows this Peter. It's, he's the first of his seven hundred and seventy six former um, uh, ancestors that he's the first man who is a man of science. So basically, the uh, um, being the man of dragons linked all the way back to his uh, predecessor. Uh, you know, that has evolved into being a man of science. So basically you have a man of science inside the body of a mythical creature and that kind of ups the stakes on the quest. Um, But they need three to start this out. And uh, so uh, the second guy is Sir Oren Neville Smythe, who is a a, a British knight who comes along. And um, because they need this third person, they send old Smurgol just so that they can make up the make up the numbers. Because technically, Gorbash no longer counts. He's asleep inside Peter's brain. <clears throat> now, before yeah, we get to I, Sir I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah? I, I feel a bit sorry for Ger- Gerbash. Gorbash. Yeah. He just misses out on everything. Yeah, he'd have loved and this. And he was quite excited. Like, I'm going on a quest. Yeah. Finally. Oh, boy. Something new. Yeah. gone for well, the rest of the movie and then at the end whenever he does i mean oh spoiler alert whenever peter uh, like unfuses with gorbash and gorbash is back he got to be like man i'm really sore like, <laughs> like i just went through did, I get, did i get hugged by an ogre oh man what have been doing with my body <laughs> so i had the to, weirdest dream send it to mark Wahlberg there bro i, I feel real sick bro I, feel real <laughs> sick, bro I think my bones are broken bro <laughs> <laughs> seriously look at this leg it's dangling weird um okay <laughs> got to the bit that I think, I suspect Lauren would have either loved or gone, no, science wrong. So, okay, tell us, basically this is the bit where old Smurgle takes Gorbash, now Peter, to a quarry to bully some dwarfs (laughs) and to (laughs) teach him, well basically just, you know, this is the stuff you gotta eat so that you can do the flying thing. And it's Peter who goes, hmm, but why? And basically, Peter works out with a blackened stick on the wall exactly why he's able to fly. So, Lauren, do you want to talk us through this and tell us whether you liked it or not? And then Jerome, jump in as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, So they talk about how they have to eat these diamonds to – they they put in their craw. And he's like, oh, that's a weird feeling. And he's like, oh, why? You never had diamonds in your craw? He's like, I've never had a craw. I love that line for whatever Mm. reason. Mm. But – and then they have to eat limestone. And uh, he talks about how, oh, well, the limestone will combine with the hydrochloric acid in our guts and, and let out some, I did some uh, hydrogen gas. Uh, stomach acids are hydrochloric acid, sodium hydrochloric chloride, acid. and potassium chloride. Yeah, but it's mainly hydrogen chloride. That's why it's pH 1, 1.5. Um, 
So, and limestone is calcium carbonate. And when the calcium carbonate is exposed to hydrochloric acid, it actually does release hydrogen gas to make calcium chlor- uh, chloride. Uh, like that's a real thing. That's, that's an actual thing that happens. Um, and it, it's interesting because in, uh, apparently in the flight of dragons book, they talk about how the calcium carbonate in the dragon's bones would be the source of that reaction and their bones just grow super fast. I actually like the limestone reasoning a lot more personally hmm. uh like it's and then, fuel basically they've got to cre- keep creating it by f- by feeding this fire stoking their furnace yeah exactly and, it, and they talk about how they have these different compartments that they can kind of expand and contract in order to allow more of that gas to uh kind of come off of the solution which is also makes sense because that would be reducing the pressure of the chemical system inside the body thereby allowing more space for the hydrogen to uh come out of the solution so like that that's actually sound science i mean like it's not super realistic but like the way that they describe it is how that stuff works it's a weird evolution as well because it requires these gemstones taken from the dwarves to actually use it as there's, there's uh, well, so I, that's that's that almost is, parasitic in nature isn't what, it? They, well, no, what's taking them so what's weird though is those gemstones i'm pretty sure have nothing to do with the release of the hydrogen because no, that's that, just that's, the calcium carbonate that's, that's to stop them having to crush up their own teeth dr- grinding up the limestone they're using the right. gemstones as crushing mechanisms to b- break it into smaller particles as it goes through into their um furnace yeah and and that and there is precedent for that just as peter says in the movie that like how birds might take uh, a stone or something to help grind up something that they eat that's like, that, that, that's a real, yeah swallowing stones to grind up seed yeah yeah so it's 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 actually interesting even the the thor's thimble so the uh, the idea is that whenever they then oh contract, hang on we need to explain the uh, the basically the hydrogen fills up these honeycomb pockets of muscle and bone yeah um, so which the, the dragon basically kind of creates a sort of a giant series of bubbles inside the dragon that make it swell up and become lighter than air yeah, well, the dragon swells up kind of like a, a scaly Hindenburg, mm. and then uh, <laughs> oh, and assuming rigid that, airship. Yeah, <laughs> but but then assuming that the dragons would also have like hollow bones, like a bird, it's actually somewhat conceivable that that's a thing that could happen. Like mm. I've read some cryptozoology texts that talk about that. If they do have um, hollow bones, though, that ogre would just have snapped. Uh, oh, Gorbash once he, he started throttling him. Yeah, he'd, he'd they'd have had a bad time. Yeah. But um, they don't talk anything about the hollow bones in this. I'm just – that was my own uh, subtext from yeah. other readings. But so then after they want to you know, become heavier than air, which – I mean so the amount of hydrogen you would need to actually become lighter than air for a creature of that size – would be pretty dramatic. They would they would bloat <laughs> a lot, and they do actually. They they to their credit, they do actually show the dragons like these giant, almost spherical lizards uh, at one point, which yeah. I thought was pretty funny. It's like so a balloon with legs. Yeah. So it's it's actually like scientifically speaking, it is it, it is plausible. Yeah. Uh, and then they recompress those compartments to then force the hydrogen gas out but then as a way of burning it off the thor's thimble is like a gland or a device in the the uh roof of their mouth that uh ignites the gas as it comes out to burn it off and that's where their breath comes from which also has precedence in in nature i mean there are creatures that can create electricity biomechanic or biochemically so it's like that's also a thing that is technically scientifically plausible uh, it's just an interesting concept to consider, evolutionarily speaking. Hurry now before we devour you. You wouldn't really. No, do 
dwarfs now. They're all sinewy and hairy. The meat she gets not worth picking out of the teeth. Now, swallow them down. Not all the way. Now, let them find your craw. Ah, odd sensation. Never had diamonds in your craw. I never had a craw. They help grind up the white fire rock when you eat it. That's limestone. A puny man word if I ever heard it. Eat. You'd wear down your teeth grinding this stuff, so you swallow it in chunks. Wiggle them around with the gemstones till they're pulverized. It's like birds use grit to grind seed. Yeah, well, don't talk with your mouth full. What's all this to do with flying? It makes the fire in your belly that gives you lift. Hmm. Limestone is high in calcium. Calcium, when mixed with stomach acids, would form hydrogen. Hydrogen is lighter than air, thus giving the lift you talk about something like a blimp. What? You got fire inside you when you go up. That's all you need to know. No, that's not logical. How could my ribs contain fire? If I could only visualize... Oh, for crying out loud. Visualize. I know. Oh, man, this is great. Now, as you explain, I'll make a diagram. Of all the... Well, I'm doing it for Carolinas. You see, we got this great, like... Mm, like a honeycomb of bone and muscle inside us. Something like this? Hey, hey, that's it. Compartments we can expand and contract. And when we expand, the hydrogen, I mean, uh, uh, dragon fire, as it were, expands and makes us lighter than air, and up we go! Hey, how do I get down? Without belts. Yes, close the valves and expel gas to come down. Well, go ahead. Turn your head, you dummy. But I wonder why it comes out as fire. Because we're dragons, and dragons breathe fire. Yes, but what makes the ignition? The Thor thimble, fool. Look in the roof of your mouth. Feel it, feel it with your tongue. Mm, yes, it feels like a thimble. Ow, ow! Mm, electricity. The electricity ignites the hydrogen, hence the fiery breath, Dragon fire, dragon flight, it all makes perfect sense. Oh, oh, what I wouldn't give for my typewriter. Ah, shut up and eat your limestone. Okay, so after you get all of this explanation, and, and, and Peter's thrilled with being a dragon and now being able to fly and knowing exactly why specifically, it's knowing why it makes him feel safe and makes him understand what's going on. Smurgle's very much kind of, oh, you kids with your science. <laughs> it's just, you, you eat limestone, you get fatter. What? And uh, we get Sir Orin's epic story. So you meet this knight, voiced by Bob McFadden, who uh, folks from the 80s will remember as Snuff. And Slythe. Yes. So Sir Orin 
is a really charming, really fun British knight who's also slightly creepy and worrying. <laughs> it's really weird because, like, if you took, like, three sentences out of the story and three bits, he'd just be a really lovely knight. But then you keep those in and there's a little bit of, well, I suppose in those days, question mark? <laughs> if you make it four That's not bits... not much of an argument. If you make it four bits and remove the really pointy nipples on his armor, those were two would... of the bits I was thinking of. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fair then. No, uh, yeah, he he has enormous pointed nipples. If you look carefully, they're actually just above the nipples, pointing upwards somehow. Yeah, uh, which still seems like a health hazard. To stop dragons biting him, I suppose. Maybe, maybe. I mean, it wasn't like they're not like in the actual nipple place, but that's all I could think of every time I'd yeah. see him, and I'm just like, that's so creepy. It <laughs> is. It's weird. It's like he's sexually excited all the time. So um, he, he he flashes back to when he was, uh, uh, you know, just a, a young knight returning from some crusade or other, and uh, he notices Briad, that evil dragon, who's pink to prove his evilness and dark blue, um, just guzzling down dragon eggs. This, you're just gobbling up the next generation. That's how crazy and psychotic this dragon is. He will eat dragon eggs. If it weren't for this, this dragon business, the laws of chivalry would force me to challenge you to a joust. I hope we never come to that, Sir Oren. I do love her with all my heart. Her purity, grace, innocence, and title are an inspiration. Have you known her long? Since she was five. Oddly enough... You brought us together. Me? Well, Gorbash did. You see, about a dozen years ago, I was mucking about in Omadon's Red Devil Realm, or whatever it's called. Some sort of quest, returning from a crusade, perhaps. I suddenly spied a rather smashing sight. A nest of dragon's eggs. Well... I was about to do a charcoal sketch when who showed up but Briar. And he began to sup on the next generation, as it were. Hold and get ye hither, or prepare to die. Good blow, if I do say so. So um, then begins what, what, uh, like a really kind of awesome dragon fight where uh, he, he, you know, he goes, Hey, Varlet, charges him with a spear. That, it ends up airborne and he ends up shoving his metal gauntlet into the dragon's mouth, which sets off the electricity, ignites the hydrogen inside him, which apparently takes him like 12 years to uh, recover from. Uh, although he should really honestly have exploded. <laughs> But that would save us. Uh, uh, that that would save us a grudge match at the end, which is one of the best bits. So uh, you know, thankfully it didn't. And uh, he brings back the single remaining dragon egg, um, which turns out to be Gorbash, to Melisandre, aged what six, five, five. And it's just this one throwaway line where he says, after he gave it her the uh, the, the the dragon, I vowed to to come back and and fall in love with her, and. Um, why? 
uh, yeah, uh, kept the vow, you know, a lot of good it did me. The idea being that basically, you know, when she came of age, she did turn out to be lovely and pretty, and he did, in fact, fall in love with her, but he was already past it, and she had uh, plenty of other suitors, I'm sure, like Peter. And um, so, yeah, but, I mean, it's not as creepy as Jacob falling in love with a fucking baby in, in Twilight 4. totally Fall. the bit I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, Twilight 5, sorry. But... Um, Especially that the fact that that baby is, has got the creepiest face of all time. So you're like, hang on, this creep loves that weird creep thing. I am. Th- where are the humans? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but in this, it's just kind of a sort of. Like, I, 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 he's kind of being sort of oh, oh a vuncular. It's, it's it's just kind of. It's not the sort of thing that would make its way into a modern day movie as a, as a, as a saying. It's it's so odd. The only. I don't want to say excuse because then it sounds like I am literally making excuses for it. The only context under which I can think it it kind of makes a little bit of sense is it is obviously a very um, dark ages medieval set yeah. world. Oh, of course, back in the day, five years old, uh, no, she no, no, been no, a childbearing no, no, no. age. I, I just no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in the sense of um, sort of that practically a spinster. At that <laughs> <age>. <laughs> Who can I marry off this old hag to? Um, the the kind of the chivalry and the the idea that knights would love women who were who they would never speak to anyway you know they would just idolize them yeah. from afar oh no i get and, it it's just that in the modern context yeah I, yeah I, I i completely get what you're getting at and i i always took it as being very very innocent as you know also I, yeah. in the absence of any other men around let's face it it's either going in a very heteronormative <laughs> environment it's either going to be orin or it's going to be her adopted father could have been one of those killers. <laughs> play your cards right my little boy could do better <laughs> right <laughs> right before he explains his the backstory though he looks at peter von gorbash and he's just like he's just like you're lucky you're a dragon and i'm like oh oh i don't like where this is going (laughs) 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 cute little fellow awkward and helpless named him gorbash in honor of the contest for it was rather gory and I did get a bit bashed about. Get it? Gory? Bashed? Hence, gore bashed. <laughs> Popped in on my old friend Carolinus. Found he'd adopted an enchanting daughter. Gave her the little dragon. Old Smurgold said he'd be like an uncle. Teach him the way of dragons. I made a vow to fall in love with Melisande when she was old enough, of course. Kept the vow. <laughs> Dashed lot of good it did me. And now she likes me. I did write the rules to this game, you know. No, I mean, I'm really quite sorry. Not at all, old chap. Feel lucky she's attracted to you. Yeah, basically, they were now on their quest. I mean, we're what? We're now and 24 minutes into this podcast, as I say this. Uh, well, they're now on their quest, and uh, they are heading towards Omadon's realm, where they're going to kick his ass and bring back his crown to Melisandre. And uh, Mel- uh, Omadon is, of course, watching him in his in his Mumra scrying pool and going, <laughs> "They f- are fools if they think they can get me." And so he sends thing after thing to try and stop them. So basically, we are now in the we're in a D and D game. 
we are in a D&D game where I can see all the saving throws that fail to happen. <laughs> you, want things, you want things to not quite work out for them for a while and for things to be troublesome rather than just, hey, this is easy. We'll just use this thing that we were given. It's, you know, there are times when it's like, they might not get through this. But from a, from a DM's perspective, though, man, this is really shoddy DMing <laughs> because it's like, oh, everybody failed their saving throw. Fuck, what am I going to do? Um, um, this wolf comes back to life death. and saves you. Like, <laughs> it's just like deus ex machina kind of kind of saving. Um, and unless like, that is stacked mm. those odds so high that they couldn't possibly get the saving throw. Yeah, unless that was the point, I guess. Maybe. Maybe. So uh, basically, right, this, the first trial they face is the Sandbergs, who are horrible little brown creatures that chitter in the in the brush so loudly and all together like cicadas that they apparently burn your mind. And this is one of those stressful scenes which I don't think would make it into a modern day film in, in this same way. Basically, um, Orin, you know, realizes what they are, starts fighting with Gorbash already, like, you're a fool, get out of here. And then um, yeah, they, they both start going mad and trying to sing to blot out the Sandmerks. And they're they're basically screaming their heads off, and the music's going super dramatic. And da, 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 da. they're gonna go mad and die, and their brains are gonna burn. It's like, wow, this is a you. <laughs> <laughs> We'd best follow the old fellow's example. We'll be nearing the devil's realm by the morrow, and we'll need all the rest we can get. Do you hear? Strange, like some insects. Oh. Crickets, no doubt. Seems to make my whole head tingle. Yes, it, it is rather annoying. He couldn't be. They only appear at the seashore. What? Impossible, I tell you. Why are you yelling at me like that? You stupid, slobbering beast. Don't you know Sandmarks? Why, you idiotic, tin-coated little goody-two-shoes. Peter, it's the brain fire. Blot out the cursed sound! Sandmerks! Try to understand! Hold, Sir Peter, I beg you! It's the Sandmerks! Horrid little creatures who attack by the million! Their chattering drives all living things insane! Your brain will burn till you die! Ow! I did it to bring you to your senses! Now listen! Fly! Fly away before it's too late! Can't! I can't used up all my lift in the crash before. Look, I see them. Clear your mind. Think, think anything, a poem, a song. Don't let them burn your mind. Ah! Someone is coming in. Loot, sing, cuckoo, grow its head and blow it dead. Oh, sing, cuckoo. I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. And it's yeah. it's intense for for a, a kids film. I th- I think I don't know. Um, but uh, it, I suppose they sell the the danger of it. And then a zombie wolf turns up. A zombie wolf that sounds like an old American cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> no reason behind it. It's fine. And um, his name is Arak, and he goes off to the big one, which is the Queen Sandmerk, knocks her off a cliff, goes down with her himself, and then turns up and then gives an exposition dump about. Why he, um, Smurgle's old friend, who talks about it like we missed one reel of the movie where we get introduced to Arak properly, where he's like, ah, you were dragged out to sea by a giant squid. I don't remember that scene, but it was epic. 
Um, <laughs> and apparently, while this wolf is he's a dire wolf, let's face it, he's, he's bigger than a Shetland pony sometimes, depending on the animation where he's standing, um, is, is dead under the sea after the squid. And then Solarius turns up and goes, Come, awaken, zombie wolf. I shall send you to fight the Sandmerks. And uh, then after you kill the Sandmerks, you shall start to breathe again. And he's like, okay. And then um, he does start to breathe. And it kind of reminded me of, of uh, that bit in uh, Return of the King where Gimli's like, you know, very handy, this, these guys. He's talking about the, the army of the dead. Wouldn't a zombie wolf that cannot die and cannot be affected by the Sandmerks and probably can't be affected by other magics be more useful than a flesh and blood alive wolf who falls into at least three traps? Yes, yes, it would be, Alex. That would be logical. But at the same time... Good point, good point. We should not be looking for logic. This is a world of magic where nothing needs to make sense. It's true. But that's the thing is, like, he's practically immortal anyway. Like, he gets a giant pile of rocks crushed down on him, and he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm good. Every bone in his body broken. Like, everyone's bones in this are made of steel. And he's adamantium. He's Wolverine. Yeah, he's Wolverine. Yeah, it, nice. it makes you wonder, like, how how did a giant squid drag you down into the bottom of the ocean? Then, yeah, I mean, like, he's this tough. must have been one badass squid. It was. I mean, he came on land, just took this dire wolf, and walked back into the sea. I like yeah, to think was... that Arak killed the squid as well as he went down. Oh yeah, it was actually Cthulhu himself rising <laughs> up out of the ocean. <laughs> And taken down by the immortal wolf, his only enemy. <laughs> like, yeah. The Blue Wizard obviously has the most power because he has Cthulhu on his side. Yeah. Right? He, they should have listened to him. He sent the squid. Almost certainly. He orchestrated yeah. oh, Guys, that's well, why he's got power over space and the ocean. Yeah. Because Cthulhu. But then, but then Cthulhu's back sleeping because of the wolf bested him. So he's like, "Well, shit, I got to make this wolf my new avatar because he kicked Cthulhu's <laughs> now." Ass. Cthulhu is Marky Mark. He's like, "Yeah, shit, bro, I couldn't even kill a wolf, bro. <laughs> I got to check my powers. I'm not over nine thousand anymore." <laughs> <laughs> the whole trick with Sandmarks is to get the big one, the queen. The others are brainless without her. All right, you're supposed to be dead, killed. Dragged out to sea by a giant squid. Quite right. I woke up underwater. Awaken, brave Arak. I am Salarius, lord of this realm, and I can restore you. Do I... Do I live once more? No, you are drowned, but I have a task for you. Accomplish it, and you will live again. Yes. Omadan has enlisted the Sandmerks to defeat Carolinus. You must destroy them. Give me life and I will. After the task, for nothing living can withstand their terrible cries. Destroy them and you will start to breathe once more. Seemed like a fair bargain. I did my part. Uh, okay, so um, because of the sandbergs, Melisandre is out of the ca- out for the count. She was seeing over great distances, like using her psychic abilities, but the sandbergs drove her mad. So she's in a coma, talking to her dad whilst asleep, and um, she like she didn't have much personality before. Now she is basically just a Glados computer, just just like um like Shirka from uh, Ulysses Thirty One. <laughs> yeah, just. Now they have entered the forest of blah de blah. She she's the medieval equivalent of Siri. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they, they go into the forest of blah de blah now with Arak, who's joined their party, and they meet a bunch of weird, creepy little, like, they're wood elf dwarf hobbits. They're everything talking <laughs> They're um, not e- humans. E- yeah, halflings. And uh, they entrap the dragons using, was it dragon rose? Like uh, yeah. they've got uh, nets strewn with dragon rose, which puts them to sleep. Normally we wouldn't go into this much detail for a film, guys. Uh, like every single possible moment. But you know, in those, most of the time, we just assume you've seen it. In this case, we're having to play this thing out for you. <laughs> so yeah, the, the dragons immediately fall asleep. And um, uh, I think they get... The, the wolf with a rock pile and Sorin with a what? Uh, he's, he's, he's about to murder all of the wood elf dwarf things. <laughs> yeah. <from> his- <laughs> he's about to fuck them up. He's and like, then fortunately, and unfortunately, a, uh, a beautiful male archer shows up and shoots all of these wood elves with his arrows, and they all get thunked against the trees, but like luckily just through their clothes. And then he goes, Oh, well done, sir. You're a very pretty man. And then he takes off his hat <laughs> to reveal the like butt length beautiful golden red hair and it's a woman after all that it's a woman exactly like in uh what what did we do recently where it turned out to be a woman oh god oh robin Um, to the prince of thieves oh yeah it's made marion turned out to be a woman yeah and um that must be a magic hat because i don't think you can fit all that hair in there it's uh, it's got a a undetectable extension charm in it I just said, just the gravitational logistics of trying to get that hair into that hat. It's like trying to get toothpaste back into the tube if the tube was above it. It's why she never puts it back on. Yeah. So that, oh, she just lets it hang free after that. Um, one thing I did like about Danielle, if you, if you look at her carefully, her face is kind of lined. She is an older lady than uh, than Melisande, definitely. If Melisande's like 17, 18, um, yeah, could, definitely not uh, uh mentally much older than that uh then danielle's at least 40 if you actually look at her face which is good yeah, less creepy there's one bit in the last unicorn which i don't think we'll be doing because i only saw it once um well so i only saw it when i was about 31 32 really recently and it's from the same studio and i'm sure it will be as beloved to some people as um, Corrupt Flight of Dragons is for me, but it's not beloved in the same way. But there's this one moment where the an, an elderly female character gets really furious at a unicorn. She's like, now you turn up? Now I dreamed of unicorns throughout my childhood, throughout my youth, and now you turn up when I'm this? It's a really lovely, sad moment. And I, I just, I kind of wish that these writers were still doing films, because... that. That sort of thing doesn't really happen that much, mm. you know? Um, so, yeah, uh, Giles is the hobbit who goes, oh, we, we thought they were Omadon's raiders. That's why they look like two good dragons, a good knight, and a wolf. Um, Common mistake. Anybody yeah, can make yeah. it. And uh, rather than challenging them, they just try to trap them. And, and uh, Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So uh, Danielle joins them. Jars joins them. But as I said, Danielle has now already served her purpose, as has Arak. From now on, uh, in the party, they are not particularly of any use. Giles, however, does prove useful later on. Um, yeah. So uh, then they go to Barleyman Butterbur's inn. And <laughs> they literally ruin him. They jump out of... Flight of Dragons and go into Lord of the Rings 
and take totally. and take a stop in at the the uh, inn of the prancing pony. And there are four ring raids having a snack there uh, from the Ralph Bakshi uh, um, Lord of the Rings. And um, uh, the, the knight Sir Orin gets really pissed off. He's like, "You allow Ermadon swine!" And then they they get out of there because he's a racist. You know, shout about the fact that just because they're they've got these black robes on and red glowing eyes, does that mean they're evil? Yes, they're totally evil. Of course, they're totally evil. You're right to be racist in this world. Um, but the uh, hang on, can I say that? You're right to be no, yeah. You're right to assume in this instance. Yeah, you're right. To, you're right to be prejudiced in this world against people who look evil because they are evil. Not one thing looks evil and actually isn't. Although actually, they do sort of play that with uh, Arak when he's lurking in the bushes. His eyes are growing, glowing, mm. and they sort of show he's like looking at them and seems to bear them ill will. It's like, oh my god, a wolf's going to attack them, and then it turns out he's their savior. So they do, they do that one neat switcheroo. Um, but yeah, so four wingways having a snack, they go immediately on to Gormley Keep and tell the ogre about uh, these guys. And uh, the dragons, meanwhile, get completely bladdered. In the cellar, they're down there drinking mead, and um, I think it's probably the first time that Pete has ever been pissed. Um, <laughs> certainly not the first time Smurgol has, but uh, yeah, they're, they're partying and drinking and singing, and uh, singing, I came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Nice moment. I've, I've stopped asking you guys about how you felt about the film. Anything strike you about the film so far that you particularly liked that I've already gone over? Well, I did love that scene where they just totally ruined that innkeeper's like yeah. entire livelihood by just consuming all of his food and drinking 30 barrels of mead. Yeah. Whenever he comes up and he says that, I'm like, God, that's a lot of mead. <laughs> it really is. And they I really do get across the point that this guy's just out of business now. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't have long to be out of business, to be fair, but... Mm. Yeah, but yeah, they basically, they've, they've, they've gorged on all of his stock, and there is the sort of vague promise of uh, gold, but of course, uh, they, they haven't bought it with them. They do mention, by the way, that gold is their bedding, because uh, they they tend to ignite anything that's cotton or, or soft, and so they need a soft metal, and gold is soft. So you kind of feel, you know, okay, Smaug, you were right to go and seek some gold. Although, possibly, you may have overshot in on exactly how much of a bed you were going to need. <laughs> <laughs> how much I mean, you sleeping did you think you were going to do? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's just somebody who only needed a twin bed, and he just really wanted to buy that king, yeah. you know? Mm. Yeah. I have the king-size bed under the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you guys could, uh, the ones who are capable of finding uh, using Google, if you just Google images, Flight of Dragons VHS, and the first one that comes up is a great big one with Gorbash on the front grinning away. It's sort of blue in the background. <sighs> I've completely forgotten to mention, by the way, that John Ritter uh, is, uh, is the voice of Peter Dickinson. That name will mean a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. Now sadly departed, as I believe is... Uh, um, uh, James Gregory, who uh, voiced Carolinus. And um, in fact, if you go back through the cast list, um, pretty much everyone's dead now. And I, I don't want to jinx it because he's clearly not going to be long for our world. But I am relishing the last few days when we still have James L. Jones alive. Yeah. I'm looking at the VHS. Yeah. Uh, what's wrong with this cover? Aside from the fact that it looks ridiculously kiddie. Uh, well, I mean, other than the fact that Peter is riding Gorbash instead of being Gorbash. That never happened. He sort of, they rode on Smurgol, but, you know, close enough. Yeah. Also, he's wearing his, like, real person clothes yeah. as opposed to the ridiculous clothes. Yep. 
Uh, but look at Carolinas. What's wrong with this picture, guys? He's a different person. Well, uh, he's the green wizard, and he's wearing blue. He's wearing purple. Purple, yeah, blue, indigo. What the hell? It's, it's, it's not Carolinas. It's a. Di- it's their fifth brother that they just don't talk about. Yes, that's the other blue wizard that they don't talk about. So Solarius <laughs> is one of the two, and this blue Carolinas is the other one. <sighs> and it, I mean, it's also like when I first saw this, because that, that picture is also the picture they used for the Wikipedia mm. uh, article about this. Mm. So I did see this image before, and I'm like, God, that looks like a bad Jewish stereotype. He's wearing like a Yarmulke <laughs> with like a big nose. I'm like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. So the four brothers are Jewish, Jewish, Chinese, African, and monster. And horrible. <laughs> yeah. And basically <laughs> Satan, which is a great name for a band. Okay, looking at the, uh, the cast list, Nellie Bellflower, who played um, Danielle, is still alive, touch wood. Uh, Victor Bueno, who played Arak the Wolf, died in uh, 1982. So when this came out, this was his last thing. James L. Jones, fingers crossed, touch wood, right now still with us. James Gregory, who, by the way, ended up as a character in the Cartographer's Handbook, or the namesake of a character, died in 2002. He was Captain Gannon in the uh, movie version of Dragnet. Um, uh, Bob McFadden, who played Gorbash, was uh, Snarf and Slythe, died in 2000. Um, Giles of the Treetops died in 1997. That's uh, Don Messick. Harry Morgan, who played Carolina, sorry, he was the one who played Captain Gannon, died in 2011. Uh, James Gregory was Briach, uh, and he died in 2002. Um, Ed Peck, who played somebody, died in 1992. And John Ritter, who played Peter Dickinson, most uh, uh, well-known for uh, being in Three's Company. Uh, His son, by the way, Jason Ritter, so son of Peter Dickinson, right? Uh, Jason Ritter is Dipper in Gravity Falls. Oh! Isn't that lovely? Oh! Do you find this enchanting, Sir Peter? Beyond my wildest dreams. If all this is just a game, I wish to play it forever. I beg you to take this. A talisman. Take it and may it protect you. You are my champion, Sir Peter. Bring me back the red crown. This place is so enchanting. Sort of confused by the phrase new mummies daily, though. I mean, how does that even work? This mountain is full of mysteries. Like, why is my head falling on your shoulder? Pew! <laughs> uh, yep, this is what I want. It's all part of the plan and stuff. Oh, Dipper, hey! <gasps> Corn maze girl! That is very lovely. So, yeah, son of Great Peter uh, is, uh, is Dipper. And he's on his own quest, which, from the sounds of it, just came to an end as well. But I would imagine Jason Witt has got a, a wonderful career in uh, voice acting ahead of him. And, uh, yeah, he's a great, great voice actor. Uh, Alexandra Stoddart played Melisandre. Don't know what happened to her. She hasn't got a Wikipedia page. And Larry Storch. Nine! I've got you in the ice caverns! He's uh, still alive. Age 93, somehow. Wow. <laughs> well done, Larry. Um, so basically, it just Larry and Nellie Bellflower as, as Danielle, and at the moment, um, uh, James L. Jones uh, are still survivors of Flight of Dragons. Otherwise, this is a beautiful eulogy for all of them. 
Okay, so the dragons get ridiculously drunk, and then they all retire for bed for the night. And it is they they, they make no bones about the fact that Sir Ori Neville Smythe and Danielle go off to take solace in each other's arms, uh, because um, you know from the look sounds of it, Lauren's Orin is uh, <laughs> is very aware that tomorrow when they enter the realm of the Red Death, they're all going to die. So when the ogre of Gormley Keep attacks the inn. Uh, and snatches them out of bed, he doesn't have to reach very far to get them both at the same time. And that's exactly what happens. A giant ogre comes in the night, and when the dragons wake up in the morning, it's, it's all they get is a scene of devastation, a dead innkeeper, and the hobbit who's hidden in the soup, uh, who uh, expositions them about what happened regarding the ogre. And it's decided that um, one of them has to fight the ogre, and Smurgle's too old, and, you know, Peter, in Gorbash's body, is in the prime of his life. He just doesn't know how to fight. So you get the prep work where uh, Smurgle says, right, now... Let me tell you something about how to fight ogres. You listening? Yes. Good. First thing to know is about the bones in an ogre. They're thick. See, an ogre's arms and legs are, are mainly bone. That's why biting is no use. And their flesh don't burn, so save your fire. Oh, if this were my game and I faced these odds, I'd just fold up the board and put it on a shelf. Uh, please continue. Let's see, hopefully throw him over a cliff. If no cliff, go for the throat or stomach. Never let him get a grip. Mm. I'd I'd take to myself, but age has got to me. I know, sir. Mm. You mean I should? No, sir. Well... Don't tell anybody what I just confessed. So uh, they go to the uh, the keep and call call him down, and it's sort of you looking up at the top of these battlements, and the ogre comes across, and it's still fucking scary for me as a, as an adult. Just the fact that this ogre turns up, possibly just because of what he does, that he is this figurehead of wordless menace. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't talk. He's just sort of there, and he's very aggressive, and then, and then Peter goes up to fight him. And Peter's obviously just a kid from Boston. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and he doesn't really know how to fight in this dragon body. And then the ogre gets a grip on him and starts killing him. And, you know, I would have gone, dude, this guy's got a wooden leg, and I breathe fire. <laughs> and I can fly. And that thing would have been going down no matter what, and I would have made him immobile. But, you know, that's just me, and I am not Peter Dickinson, and Peter Dickinson is not me. But basically what happens is Peter gets his ass handed to him and Smurgle intervenes to to save him and uh, to, to basically, he just yells, let that schoolboy go, which is about the best battle cry you can you can shout when you're an old <laughs> war horse charging in to save the day. Hit his chest, knock him over the wall. Strength, give me strength. Lola, no, what are you doing? <laughs> no. You let him get a grip on you. Ah, blazes. Hey, hey, you. Let that schoolboy go. And he fights the ogre, and it is a, a bloody battle, and the ogre crushes the shit out of him, but uh, Smurgle knocks the ogre over to his death. And then Smurgle dies. Jesus. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I didn't watch many movies where somebody dies when I was a kid because they didn't do that stuff. I mean, I, I watched the movie where Bambi dies. But, sorry. Bambi's, <laughs> oh, Whoa, Bambi's mother watching? dies. This is pre-Lion King, though. Mm. But it's the fact that he, he he's not sort of, you know, oh, my God, I'm in pain. And I've got to tell you I love you. It's just, He basically just goes, yep, this is the right thing that I could have done. And well, what did you guys think? I, I was a little not, not not necessarily taken aback by it, but I had gotten kind of attached to Smurgle because, again, like the characters that I really connected with more than anybody else were the dragons because everybody else was just tagging along. And I'm like, these dragons are pretty awesome. Like, yes, I will. I will go along with this. And when it goes in there and he like sacrifices himself to do it and then he's croaks, it, it was like actually pretty affecting. I was surprised to to see that. Um personally i it oh man and i know we're gonna get to it but it it burned me so much at the end because Mm -hmm. he's the only one that stays dead but that's you know we'll get to that but that's the thing if if he had been brought back to life you don't get that melancholy you don't get that bit of sweetness you're just like everybody survived you just i mean there's a the bit of sweetness would come from the being separated from it but 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 why bring anyone back is my question yeah Smirkle? Yes. Ah, that, uh, uh, backside maneuver, I, uh, well, that was one I, I failed to mention. Easy, easy, old friend. I think, I think something's burst inside of me. I think my heart's gone, laddie. But, but I, I, I did do him in, huh? Yes. Yes, you certainly did. <laughs> what a grand, grand way to finish a glorious life. And so they move through Gormley Gate. Old Smurgle, how I shall miss you, friend. And lo, they enter the realm of the Red Death. After this, uh, it's almost like the the film uh, hits its um, its peak of emotion at this point, and then there's a bunch of business. Okay, basically they have to deal with the worm of Sligoth, this depression arm, a flight of dragons, and then Briarch himself, and then the big bad boss, Omadon. Now, the worm of Sligoth... Oh, sorry, Jerome, what did you think of uh, um, just, just the death scene? Was it expected? Did it, was it touching? I, I sort of... I, I maybe wasn't expecting him to die. It was like, I was either expecting him or the knight to die. But because the tone that, that the movie said at the beginning, I was expecting someone to die and not come back. Yeah. And growing up, I have been quite used to having one uh, character or... So in my, um, in my animated films, just die and never get to come back. Yeah, because that became more prevalent in the era where I was watching animated films. That's true. One, uh, one fact, Lion King was probably one of the first ones I ever watched. Yeah, 
one review that I read uh, said, um, and it was in 2011, said uh, this this is quite you know revolutionary because I can't think of many films for, for kids these days that do kill somebody. I was like, I can't name many great kids films these days or films that are, uh, have a family audience in mind that don't kill somebody <laughs> now it's uh, there's you know that it there are certain movies where i mean even the lego movie had its um its death from from which a character does not really return i mean they do in spirit literally <laughs> but um it's I think it's really important that that uh, kids' stories do actually tackle death and do actually bring in a character that you mourn and and, and feel the loss of, because otherwise there is a certain weightlessness to the story, uh, a lack of impact. You don't have to have it; you can still have an impact. Like um, at the end of uh, season one of Korra, you still feel the impact without anybody having specifically died. Because of actually what's gone on, and then that's that's a huge emotional kicker. But um, it, so it's not required, but it certainly shouldn't be shied away from. Certainly not to protect kids. In fact, you're doing the opposite in that regard. You're actually giving them really thin defenses because they never get any practice. Actually. Exactly. Yeah, they're never exercising those muscles. So when something inevitably bad does happen, they can't handle it. Uh, Sharon, you and Smuggle. I think for me the the sacrifice element was was really key with Smurgle and it was important that somebody have a permanent death um, to to kind of have that feeling about it because if you think about it the idea of self-sacrifice and the idea that you would put yourself so far out um, for somebody that you care about that you you know your very life um, is is under threat that's the flip side of, of that inspiration and that magic that they were talking about at the beginning. There has to be stakes. Otherwise, what does it actually mean? Um, and I think it kind of felt a bit, uh, it was significant to me that, um, that Smurgle was old and he was the one that they chose to be, uh, the, the one that, gave up his life because again that's reinforcing that idea of um the previous previous generation generation leaving this world for the next generation yeah i hadn't ever really read into that generational legacy side of it Uh, as you know beyond just science versus magical mysticism versus logic um but uh yeah there's there's very much sort of grandfathers passing on to children in this um so yeah, as I said, they you know that now they're into the road of trials, and so you have got the worm of Sligoth, which basically breathe like you know emits a flammable slime. How do they deal with that? Well, so okay, <laughs> it's not a flammable. So they specifically say that it is some kind of sulfuric acid. It's probably tetrasulfuric acid, which I've actually worked with, and is not flammable. All right, which bothered me. Okay. But any kind of acid has um, part of the actual product of it being an acid is the release of some kind of uh you know ions and such so it, it could i guess potentially make hydrogen somehow i mean it's not like we're given a, a an evolutionary lesson on how this giant worm of sligoth is uh you know how it came to be and what its actual biology is i feel like peter's just kind of like eh, let's see if this works like let's just throw this at the wall and see if it sticks <laughs> 
And, and it does just, stink. It, yeah, it's just lucky for it. Which, I mean, to be fair, is kind of like how you were saying before is how this feels a lot like a D&D game where it's like, okay, we're going to throw something at you that you're never going to be able to defeat unless you get this one weakness and hit yeah. it in its weak spot. And yeah. yeah. Or if it was a Final Fantasy game, the worm is readying an attack and you've got to attack it with fire at that exact moment. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's dealt with. Then Omadon brings in the clouds of Mordor and makes everybody depressed. And it's it's like you know the Dementors suddenly turn up and everyone's like, "What's the point?" And it's a really it, it fits because at this point you are kind of feeling like we're not making enough progress. We've already lost one of our you know major one of our number. And look at this, I've got a little tiny sword. And, you know, I'm a wolf in a giant desert, and what is the point of this? Even our dragon doesn't know, you know, how to do anything, really. Um, And it's only Peter who seems to be exempt from it, possibly just because it's so magical-based and he's so science-based. So he brings out the Shield of Saturn that uh, was given to him ages ago by uh, Solarius. He even has to be told by (laughs) Solarius, who turns up. I mean, basically, that means that Solaris has been watching this in his scrying pool, and he could have helped them with all kinds of stuff. <laughs> uh, I could have sent you a sea serpent. <laughs> Just like throws a, killer whale, throws a killer whale down on the sand. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine him constantly being like, use the shield. I gave you a magic shield. Use the shield. Yeah. I could have sent something too, but all of my, my people are peaceful. That's a motor shell. So, so yeah, um, uh, Peter sort of uh, stretches the uh, shield out and then uses it as like a a, a beam shield to push the arm away and everyone gets perky again. Then Omadon goes, right, and bring out the big guns and sends after them a flight of dragons, which is the collective term for a bunch of dragons all at once. And it's... An armada, basically, and, and they are doomed, dead. There is no way they can defend themselves against this lot. And um, does Lotajal tell them, or do they just figure it out? Peter figures it out. Oh, Peter it, figures well, it out. It's at this point that they're like, oh, wait, those items that they gave us for yeah. this specific moment. Yeah. Well, thank God Baba Yaga gave me this comb. And, um, <laughs> yeah. That's how myths work. You I know. the right thing at the right time. I, I, believe me, I don't dislike this bit. It's, it's in fact, one of my favorite bits. Um, the, the, the Hobbit gets tossed this uh, float because he can play, and then he plays a lovely tune which ties in with the Flood of Dragons song and sings the dragons to sleep. And no fight needed. No bloodshed, no uh, no genocide, basically, because that's what it would have been. These are all the dragons. And they were uh, under Omadon's spell. And in fact, yeah, they, we mentioned it earlier. Um, sorry, we've, we neglected to mention it earlier. The only two dragons who are not with Omadon are uh, Gorbash and um, uh, Smurgle. Smurgle even had to defy his own brothers to, um, to stay on the side of Carolinus. Look! Dragons! Dozens of them! Hopeless! It may be hopeless, but I'll take a few of them before they get me! Let me take Rhea! If I die, let me die a dragon killer! No offense, Gorbash, but I suddenly hunger for dragon! Wait, we've got a chance. Sir Oren, in your saddle pack, the tiny golden flute, give it to Giles. Now, Elf, pipe us a tune. 
yeah, that's uh, that was fixed, and uh, they uh, move on to the next square. And I, I, I did actually yeah. say at this point, it's they've been walking in the desert for ages, so there's very little sense of progress. I want to say, do you want to move forward a few spaces? It's your go. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you guys on these two scenes, anyone? Depression arm, flight of dragons. I, I I was whenever all the dragons started falling out of the sky, I was like, oh god, how many of them are going to just break their necks? Explode! They're hydrogen bombs. <laughs> I I know it's weird. But the first two thoughts I had were, what if the guy can't actually play the flute? <laughs> <laughs> You're just assuming he can because he's a, a hobbit. A flute is a very specific type of instrument. Asian wizard, use your kung fu on them. (laughs) Did I ever? Did I ever give any indication that I knew kung fu? They they throw him the the flute, and he's like, "I'm really more of a bongos kind of guy." And they're like, "Shit!" (laughs) I play the drums. They missed a trick, not casting George Takei as Lotichel. By the way, (laughs) Carolinus. How many times have I told you we are peaceful people? Oh my god. And of course, all the dragons falling from the sky. I, I thought one of them might actually be heading towards them or something. Because mm. that's a lot of dragons just yeah. falling from the sky. But they seem to actually float because they're, they're mainly hot air balloons. Yeah, they're, they're still, <laughs> they're, they are still gaseous and expanding. They're just no longer using their wings to fly. They're just slowly descending towards the Earth like balloons. Um, it, for me, it's a hypnotic and sort of lovely scene that to, to see them sort of falling out of the sky, just slowly re- removing the magical beasts from the sky of, of the world as it makes way for tomorrow. Um, sure. But there was one dragon who was a party pooper and would not fall asleep because he was just such a total hate bag. And that's uh, Briarch, uh, the, uh, uh, the the dragon that previously t- uh, tussled with Orin. And um, he goes on a killing spree. He just sets down in that sand and kills everyone. Peter has fallen asleep because he's a dragon and, uh, you know, kind of lucky he did because I, I feel like uh, Briag would have torn his head off his shoulders uh, but yeah he kills Giles easily because he's a hobbit he kills Danielle just by picking him up and crushing her and tossing her down he even kills the horse even Game of Thrones sometimes lets the horse live uh, he kills Arak with just tossing him aside and the last one left is Orin the, uh, the knight again a really emotional moment because he, he's he's just decided, okay, this is how it's going to be, huh? I happen to know Dragon's weaknesses. Uh, for some reason, you, Dragon, haven't worked this one out. So uh, Briag starts burning the shit out of Owen. I don't get why he doesn't burn through his helmet, because guy's got great big eye holes there. But let's just say it's a magic helmet. And, um, you know, he basically prays to his sword, and which is by this point red hot, and then tosses it straight into the Dragon's chest, making Briag explode. Mm. I actually quite enjoyed it because the dragon knight knows how to beat a dragon. Yeah. Even in the worst situation. Yeah. It was actually one of the moments I was waiting for. Mm. Yeah. So it seemed like a pretty standard mini boss right before the final battle. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just send it in, you know. It's like, oh, well, the number one minion, He's he doesn't fly because of hydrogen. He flies because of spite. But it's just as flammable. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, for the most of the movie, I didn't think the other dragons could speak because they don't. <laughs> just very few of them do any conversations between each other. It's yeah. only when they're talking to humans. Yeah. yeah. 
Although, uh, Briag does speak. Puny scum of Carolinas. He can chat. He, he, he mm. could have had a talk with them, but he just wanted to kill them. Uh, and, and of course, Orin dies at the, uh, Orin dies at the end. Um, uh, you know, curls up beside Danielle, leaving Omadon laughing on the battlefield, victorious with everyone down. Um, your party has wiped. <laughs> and, yeah. um, wow, but somebody had an extra life. Sharon, this just just this moment or Orin's death or nothing? Okay. Okay, uh, no, no, no. I, I was just trying to think how to to sum up how I felt about it. It's it's difficult watching it in retrospect because you know that they get that etch a sketch ending, and I can't really remember how I responded to it the first time I saw it. Um, well, it for me, again, it's it's uh, like the sacrifice of, of Groot, just because. Just because it's righted doesn't make make it any less impactful or powerful. The fact that he, uh, you know, knows knows that he's going to die and that he has to strike at the heart of this thing to to the uh, you know to actually do something of use before he goes. Mm. I, I will actually say I, I did like his little prayer to his sword. Mm. That was a really nice touch. Mm. I, I thought like it, it, it like added more impact to the moment and just I don't know. I, there was something about that that, that I liked a lot. Yeah. Giles, my darling Danielle, and Arak too. Blade with whom I have lived, blade with whom I now die, serve right and justice one last time, seek one last heart of evil, still one last life of pain, cut well, old friend, and then farewell. Praying? <laughs> now die. lived a life with thee, lassie. So now I die. So uh, Omadon victorious uh, turns up and then almost immediately turns into Tiamat. Like nine dragon heads burst out of his enormous fat back. And at this point, Peter emerges in his silly costume from Gorbash. Kind of like ghost Peter because like he's, you know, he's been set, like Gorbash has fallen asleep. And then uh, Peter realized while he was asleep that an object, that two objects can occupy the same space and oh, broke the spell. Well, actually, so... That's what Peter says, but they do mention, or I should say, Carolinus mentions through after he hears what happens from his. Oh, in one of his many series, expositionary tracts. Well, he says something about how, like, oh, once those dragons wake up, any spells that were laid on them will be dispelled. Mm. So I just thought, oh, well, there's a pretty easy way to get out of your wild magic spell that you laid down earlier. And oh, look, there's Peter. There we go. So mm. it, I, that's. Mm. 
That's how I originally thought it. And Peter's just like, because his little, I realized the two things couldn't occupy the same space, even though that's exactly what has happened for the last 84 minutes of this movie. <laughs> but this is important because he's about to deny magic. He's yeah. about to say, this doesn't make any sense. He's about to do what we've done a lot during movies, <laughs> which is to go, they haven't really thought about this. It's illogical because that's that's kind of the point of magic in this world. It's not the whole uh, what uh, was in Thor of, you know, that magic and uh, uh, science are the same thing. It's just that they're different words and they're... Um, you know, once you understand magic, it's just the same as science. In this case, magic uh, exists because of our ability to believe that it exists, even though it seems inconceivable. I think <coughs> my assumption about this particular incident, um, although I like the whole, you know, I suddenly realised two things can't exist in the same place, and so we separated. I thought it was that the music had put Gorbash's body to sleep, but because Peter was not a dragon, mm. um, he therefore at that point became separated from yeah. the dragon's body. But that's how he rationalised it to himself. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and that may in fact be part of it, that that might not really be what happened, but because he's using his logical mind at that point, he is rationalising it, and it's the act of rationalising it that thwarts the magic. You could also argue this is uh, uh, actually logic and science versus spiritual faith, the idea that we can, in fact, as a species, we could conceivably leave all spirituality behind and proceed only with cold, hard science. Mm. Uh or, as Carolinas appears to be implying, continue with the science, just keep spirituality in the background, uh, keeping things uh, imaginative and, and keeping things not so much grounded, but, yeah, but basically in the mix. Plenty of other really excellent films have sort of uh, examined the idea of spirituality and uh, science. Sunshine's one that springs to mind. Um, people don't tend to like uh, it when you combine the two in fact if you remember when uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull came out aliens very much rooted in science uh, Indiana Jones all of his artifacts very much rooted in spirituality and belief in art, in the artifacts themselves uh, people didn't feel that those two were a good mix they don't, they don't like having it rammed down your throat from the sounds of it the ending of Lost put a few backs up okay so uh, Peter basically faces down Omadon and says you aren't real Nothing as uh, as horrible as you could exist. I deny you. And Omadon says to deny me is to deny all magic. So Peter has to deny all magic. And this starts having an effect on Omadon. So while he's got these nine dragon heads burning out, um, he's, uh, the, the hook is, I can pluck down the sun from the sky. And Peter teases him and says, nah, that, even, that isn't even where the sun is. You're just looking at where the sun was eight minutes ago. Um, and then starts laying down all of this understanding of, of, of the physics of the world that we just didn't have a thousand years ago onto this wizard and blows his mind. He literally blows his mind. Several uh, times. He yeah. has several heads at that point. Yeah. It, it, to indicate his weakening, uh, multiple Tiamat heads start exploding. So while he's crying out for come witches cruels trolls ogres dragons worms wolves badgers marmots blah 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 peter starts crawling to all the spells of logic so basically he goes down to uh chemistry biology psychology geology oh, geometry physics trigonometry zoology so it's specifically in alphabetical order Two. So it's algebra, anatomy, astronomy, biology, chemistry, geology, geometry, mathematics, meteorology, mineralogy, oceanography, paleontology, physics, psychology, sociology, trigonometry, and zoology. Yeah. 
And he says the more shouts them all as incantations at Omadon, who becomes smaller and smaller and screaming and screaming. And basically the idea being that this magic cannot cannot have any dominion uh, over a world which can work stuff out for itself. It's it's no longer needed, basically. It's it's uh exposing it for the uh uh, the, the children's fairy tale that it is. And uh, uh, in doing so, it's laying innocence down on an altar and smashing it with a hammer. Which kind of leads to the bittersweetness of this, because basically to do this, Peter needs to turn his back on the whole realm of magic and needs to leave it behind and, and move forwards into the, uh, uh, you know, back into the future, leaving this magical world to basically um, succeed in the bubble retirement zoo that uh, um, Carolinas originally intended in a, in a way that is possibly even more faint than uh, than he had originally intended even more subtle in the way it affects uh, mankind from the sidelines, from the shadows I deny you deny me and you deny all magic say it then I deny all magic Those incantations can't hurt me. I have some incantations of my own. How about a body in motion tends to stay in motion? Protons have 1,832 times the mass of electrons. All light is bent or refracted as it goes from one medium to another, save in a direction perpendicular to the interface between the two mediums. Selective action of external conditions upon the variations from their specific type which individuals present. Gravity varies as to the inverse square of the distance. The velocity of light is equal to the wavelength times the frequency of vibration. The geometrical properties of the space-time continuum are determined by the masses present in space and time. To bring in the last little bit of the D&D campaign, Omadon turns out to be what we call a load-bearing boss because once he's defeated, all of the badness just falls away and all of the goodness just springs into being. <laughs> so it'd be like whenever you destroy a boss in a game, oh no, the castle's collapsing for reasons! You have to run! Like, yeah. a, a load-bearing boss, as you will. Because the, the last realm of magic just, just happens. Like, Omadon's gone, they're like, oh, got his crown, and then the magic bubble just appears. Yeah, he was the only thing standing in the way, and basically just all the spell bits were in place to make that happen. And uh, you remove the Omadon doorstop, and then you just, boom, and it happens. Yeah. Um, I, you guys must have seen South Park bigger, longer, and uncut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, a bit so. at the very, very end after the uh, American-Canadian War uh, that um, Big Gael gets back up and goes, we were all dying, and now we're fine. I think that's referencing this. 
because <laughs> all the snow melts away and it's all green and lovely. And everybody who had been horribly killed, including Terence and Philip, uh, apart from Saddam Hussein, who is that film's Omadon, is is brought back to life. Except, of course, in this case, old Smurgol. So, yeah, uh, Orin comes back, Danielle comes back, Arak comes back, Gorbash comes back with the brain of Gorbash, and then Wizard of Oz style, Carolinas' house just flies down, and he comes up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah, Melisandre's in the bedroom going, oh, Peter came to me and gave me this crown, and then, then left and went, back to the future! And, uh, yeah, then um, she says, can I go to him and, uh, you know, basically ask, can, can I leave you forever on this one and, and go live in the future? Because... God damn it, Dad. You have kept me sheltered for too damn long. <laughs> I mean, you know, she she's not going to know much about Boston society, but she doesn't seem to know much about mythological England society either. So other than the, the whole those who were once dead are suddenly back to life kind of get out of, you know, get out of death clause that is a little feels a little cheap. And then the oddness of the house flying down. I still felt uh this this ending was still like weirdly powerful for me uh in just kind of the theme of the whole thing so as a little bit of background in a sense the reason that i even that you even sent me this film to begin with was because of an idle conversation we had while we were playing some video game on uh our tuesday night probably aliens colonial marines god damn it i didn't want to invoke the name but yeah it was colonial (laughs) marines but i had mentioned that i had done a lot of uh, work for a project back in the day for an academic presentation on the uh biological reasonings behind a dragon existing in the various powers basically what the flight of dragons book is about except i i even took it further i went for everything and uh i just mentioned this and you said oh you really need to see this movie and and you know got me a copy of it so i could then see said movie and it resonated on a weird level for me because i am so hardcore like the peter character in this film thematically where like yes i I've done a lot of chemistry, biology. I've done a lot of sciences. I've studied a lot of the the various elements of science. I've done the experiments. I've tested all this stuff. But I still, like, part of me, part of my mind is still just in that inspiration, that magical world, that realm of magic, to the point where I like to take science to that, where, you know, I, I... I looked at dragons and I did all of this research to find all of the possible plausible explanations as to why a dragon has all of the various aspects that it has. Folklorically, I mean, so one of the interesting things that I found that has stayed with me is every, every folklore from every culture has a dragon in it, regardless of if they had any kind of communication with each other, which is odd. So that, that, that kind of thing just expanded into knowledge like just looking at this curiosity to try to explain the magical to bring logic to the magic and that is such an important like part of of like my journey to who i am today because you know i've i've developed that for religions for anything that somebody tells me like it has to pass some kind of test but i'm still open to the concepts that okay maybe this is something that we don't necessarily understand, but we should be able to understand it. We just have to look at what it is. We just have to figure out what's going on here. And I don't know. There's something about the the end, especially in the end, whenever uh, Mel, uh, Millicent's like, oh, he woke me with a kiss. And Carolinas is like, well, maybe he's not given up magic entirely. And I'm just like, God, that is like, 
so me where like even the more more and more I got into science and the more and more I started to puzzle out the real world and try to explain kind of the magic of the world just the more and more magic I found and I just never gave I never really gave up that concept and just personally having stayed so much of my time with a foot in either world so to speak uh, it I did find this very powerful for its themes and for the ending and it was a weird experience because like I said before I didn't really I didn't really get on with a lot of the animation we've made a lot of fun of some of the gross stereotypes for the characters and some of the just oddities of this movie but in the end the themes and the and the just the resolution was on like a weirdly personal powerful level and yeah, so that's that's my little gush about the ending. Thank you. That's that makes me feel really happy because I thought I that was the best I could have hoped for in terms of I think Lauren's really gonna like this, but I don't want to sell him too much on it. Uh, I'm just gonna say just see this, just see this. I mean, that's uh, by extension, that's why I'm doing this for all of you guys out there because ultimately, if you listen to my podcast a lot, then you're probably going to be into to a lot of the themes that you know have been mentioned here in some capacity, even if you think this is a cheesy old, very naive, childish uh, animated oddity. It's sheer rarity for me uh, makes it like something that really needs to be uh, explored and celebrated, just to be re-uncovered. Um, most Flight of Dragons fans are, uh, you know, I haven't really associated with them, but what I've been reading over the past few days, just re- doing research for this, most of them are like, we believe this film will be discovered someday. And, you know, the, a lot of them want a, a live action film or an update or something like that. And, uh, you know, were crushed when in two- 2012 that kind of fell through. I still think it could be done. Um, just you know, take the bare bones of this and some of the more interesting elements of it and rework it into something because ultimately you've got your modern day nerd character thrown into this situation. That's a very saleable D and D type scenario. Basically, I think the reason it was canned was because the Hobbit was nowhere near as beloved as, as um, Warner brothers were hoping. That could be wrong. But even, even you asking me to, to appear on this podcast. And then whenever we get to the points that have some kind of, they explain it with science, they explain some kind of magic with science, how the dragons work, how, like why the worm exploded. The fact that you specifically turned to me, knowing that I had already done the research to try Mm -hmm. to explain it, I think speaks volumes as to a lot of what I had just said as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, I've it's it's definitely coloured my um, my reckoning of fantasy for my my entire life. I've never really been one for well, things just happen. I, I've always been kind of well, but how? There is a, a subgenre called magic realism, which the more I read about it, the more it it just seems to repel me because a lot of people who are into magic realism are very gatekeeperish. They're very kind of you know this is not magic realism. A lot this word gets bandied about a lot too much. Um, and I would not refer to this as magic realism. Occasionally, uh, I believe something like New Century can have elements of magic realism in it. But um, in in essence, it's basically what if magic was real in a mundane world, which is something of supreme interest to me and done with a spark of, uh, of, of true creativity and uh, 
ultimately, I think a lighthearted tone, whilst at the same time embracing melancholy, is you know really works for this film. And and I think the biggest difference between this and those magical realism books like you're talking about is the direction that they come at it from. Because the magical realism books that I've seen are more like, okay, we're going to come at it from science and explain how this can look like magic. While this movie and a lot of other things that I that resonate stronger with me are, okay, this magical thing happened. How can we explain it with science? Mm-hmm. And like there's just a different angle that it's coming at that I, I that really works for me. Jerome and Sharon? Hmm. I feel, for me, very much, this film, it's something that's left me behind. It, it's, it is a bit too early for me to actually, to, a bit too early for me to draw an attachment to. And mm-hmm. personally, for the ending, I was hoping for a bit more focus on Peter back in modern day, having to deal with having... Gov- that bittersweet melancholy feeling of having to have a slight detachment from his belief in magic, but still having to keep that kindle alive yeah. inside himself. And the, the Melisandre scene, I was kind of hoping for um, that to come maybe a bit later. Like they, they see each other from across the road, like just a glimpse and they still haven't fought, found each other. When I think about the way it sounds, I was hoping for a bit sadder of an ending. I know that sounds weird, but that's what I was... I I felt just a bit let down by how it all came together at the end. Sharon? I'd say my response is pretty similar to Lauren's, actually. Um, One thing this brought some clarity for me was the fact that sometimes I'll watch a film or read a book or um, or look at a picture or something and something just clicks and it's generally to do with seeing a whole that I can I then see how it's made up of its individual parts and then see the whole again and it's almost like a magic eye picture mm. and my brain is kind of reading the components and the consolidated thing at the same time. Mm. And um, there's quite a few moments within this where that happens, and mostly they're around Peter analysing and dissecting things and then it coming together and working magic of a sort anyway. And that's something that just resonated with me immensely. In 1983, Peter Dickinson, this is the real-life one, had met Robin McKinley, an American author of fantasy. Some, Oh, hang on. Dickinson married Mary Rose Bernard in 1953. So he was born in um, uh, 1927. So, wow. Jesus. He, he would have been considerably older than the Peter depicted in 1982. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, he, he married Mary Rose in 1953. The couple had two daughters and two sons, including the author John Dickinson. Mary Rose died in 1988, the same year that their first two grandchildren were born. As of 2009, there are six grandchildren. In 83, Dickinson had met Robin McKinley, an American author of fantasy some written for children. After a long friendship, they married in 1991, so basically three years after his first wife died. She said in 2009 that she cannot judge the literary work of people she likes personally, but fortunately, I had been passionately devoted to his books years before I met him, so I can merely go on thinking they're wonderful and he's brilliant now. Um... 
For years, he listed manual labour as his one pastime. At 85, he listed only bridge and gardening. He died after an illness on the 16th of December 2015, less than two months ago, his 88th birthday. Sir Peter is gone. Gone? Where? As Carolinus hoped, he used his knowledge of science to deny magic. But by denying magic, he is lost to us forever. Miller Sound, she's awake. Father, Sir Peter was here. Yes, yes, my darling. Look! The crown of Omadan, as foretold, it awakened you. No, the kiss awakened me. The kiss? I was lost in that sleep of death. Then I felt his lips upon mine. I opened my eyes, and for an instant I saw his smile. Then he was gone. Awakened you with a kiss, eh? Well, perhaps he isn't completely lost to magic. May... May I join him, Father? Of all questions, I feared that the most. May I? That must be your decision, child. Go, and you may never return to the magic realm. For even now, the great dome of invisibility grows over our world to protect its sanctity for all time. And no one on the outside may enter its boundaries, save for the length of a dream or flash of an inspiration. But it will stay through the years, the centuries, and the ages, a part of man for all time. And whenever man needs magic, we will be here. Eleven! Your dragon fire melts my ice. Oh, you win. Look, I gotta get back to work. Wait a minute. I do have some business now. I told you, that watch of yours... Not the watch. This. Ye gods! Solid gold! Where did you find this? Oh, I had a hoard. I don't blame you for not telling. You can live off this for years. Travel, Europe, Asia, cruises. No, I'll be satisfied with a cottage surrounded by trees near a stream, like one I used to know. Oh, can I help you, miss? Where do you kids get these things? Melisande. And actually, a spiritual successor to uh, to this film. I don't know if it was intentional on their part or not. Maybe, you know, this film may have completely passed them by when they're like, right, we've got to research turning children's books about dragons into movies. How to train your dragon. You know, it doesn't go anywhere near into, into the biology of it, but most definitely it's, it's t- thinking about them as real creatures, even if they are, you know, st- super stylized to entertain children. Um yeah, technically, Hiccup is Great Peter. Ooh, prequel. Yeah. <laughs> it has that. Um, it has that tone of instead of making assumptions about these creatures based on what 
you've always been taught. How about we actually observe and write down our observations? Thank you very much, you useless reptile. <laughs> That's not at you. I know. <laughs> but, uh, I'm not so, a reptile for a start. So ultimately, if you're a big fan of uh, How to Train Your Dragon, consider this uh, a sequel slash prequel of sorts. So I think that's Flight of Dragons. Any more to say on this uh, film before we go? Uh, I I ordered a copy of the book as soon as I was done watching it. <laughs> that, but that was also when I realized I had actually paged through this book before as part of that academic mm. project and not realized the connection until then, which I thought was interesting. I think by this point, there's no point us uh, like you know saying you should get this or should not. But you you already know at home whether you're gonna uh, um, to to get hold of this. I'd say that the, the nice and safe way of doing it, just to see it once, would be just rent it on uh, Amazon, direct, you know, video streaming. And uh, my suggestion would be watch it on a TV rather than a, um, a computer screen. Just give it as much grandeur as you can. You know, turn the lights off. Uh, you know, appreciate the music. You grit your teeth through the animation if that's not your thing. Uh, if you're in, if you ever loved Thundercats, you'll probably be more at home because they'll be, uh, you know, you'll see little little bits like the ogre of Gormley Keep doesn't look a million miles off of Slythe. And uh, when um, Briag the Dragon comes in and attacks them and is flaming red, there's almost kind of a Thundercats ho moment. But uh, if it doesn't really sound like your thing, thank you for listening this far. Because this was a heavy-duty episode. You know, let us know if you want to hear us do more totally obscure movies. Because, you know, there's plenty of other... You know, we, we, we tend to do things like The Avengers that everyone's seen. And, you know, it's great to be able to discuss that. But occasionally, it's nice to be able to give you guys something new, something different, something that no one else can do. So uh, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you guys so much for coming on. My pleasure. No worries. Cool, cool. Right, uh, and this is the uh, instrumental version of Flight of Dragons by Don McLean. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. School's out. fucking trains what is up with this oh that one's going the other direction god is, how come we got so many fucking trains bro god where are <laughs> these, Man. Bro, these, bro, these trains are sick bro they come on forever I, I, that, that I, one started in Boston and I think it's gone pretty much all the way to LA now I, I'm pretty happy actually that with all the Marky Mark references yeah. that we didn't point out that Peter like we mentioned it but it He's never from became Boston. a thing it's from Boston <laughs> Oh, sick, bro. I'm a dragon. Check out this board game I made, bro. It's about dragons and stuff, bro. I don't think anyone's done one of these before, bro. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs>